Ready to pop the question? The jewelers at BlueNile.com have got sparkle down to a science with beautiful lab-grown diamonds worthy of your most brilliant moments. Their lab-grown diamonds are independently graded and guaranteed identical to natural diamonds, and they're ready to ship to your door. Go to BlueNile.com and use promo code LISTEN to get $50 off your purchase of $500 or more. That's code LISTEN at BlueNile.com for $50 off. BlueNile.com, code LISTEN. Hello and welcome to the Political Party Podcast, this one featuring the former leader of the English Defence League, Tommy Robinson. Uh, This was recorded just before the general election. Things have moved on quite a bit since then, Uh, but the interview with uh, Tommy is still fascinating. And I think, well, again, draw your own conclusions, but I think people who were there on the night were perhaps um, a little surprised at how much they liked him. Um, but that, I don't want to preempt how you might feel about it, but nevertheless, he's a fascinating fella. And here we are. Good evening, hello. Hello, welcome. Everyone all right? Yeah. Got all your bags checked? That's not because of the second half, that's because this first half of topical comedy is so dangerous. We don't want people to throw anything. Uh, there's a, a, a special atmosphere in the air. Give me a cheer if you've been here before. Yeah. Excellent, welcome back, regulars. Give me a cheer if this is your first time. Yeah. Yeah, excellent, some very enthusiastic newbies. Welcome to the show. Uh, wonderful stuff. People excited about the election? Yeah. Excellent. I'll tell you what, we'll do it. If you don't mind, we'll do a quick opinion poll. Uh, give me a cheer if you're definitely going to vote next week. Yeah. Yeah. Okay. Cheer if you're definitely not. I think Tommy's here. Uh, uh, is it? Russell who? Oh, Russell Brand. Oh, very good. First topical joke of the night, ladies and gentlemen. Thank you. Wonderful. What's your name, mate? Richard. Oh, Richard. <laughs> so you're Richard. Legend. Welcome. Uh, can we see if you're going to vote Conservative next week? Okay. Uh, I, I reckon there might be a few more than that. <laughs> can we see if you're going to vote Labour next week? Okay. Liberal Democrat? Yeah. Green? <laughs> Absolutely battered. The two fucking stoners in the corner. Uh, UKIP? Yes. Oh, yeah, 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 yeah. They're left wing tonight. Uh, <laughs> that communist lot up there. Bloody hell. Splitters. Um, SNP? Okay. <laughs> okay. <laughs> Couple of people. Uh, what other options? None of the above. Pirate pie. What? Pirate pie. What was that word? Pirate. <laughs> the pirate party. The pirate party. The pirate party. Yeah. Okay. The pirate party. <laughs> Happy now? <laughs> Fucking hell, mate. Bloody hell. Is that who you're going to vote for? manner about you, very professional. The most professional paperboy I think I've ever met. <laughs> um, so would you say that you were traditionally left-wing? Of left and right? <laughs> oh, crikey, so out of, the, out of the parties that are standing, which one do you think most appeals to you? Green party. Green party? Oh, don't get them going again, mate. Give your eyes a kite by the end of the night. Starting around with them, I'm like, bloody hell. Well, welcome. What's your name? Tom. Tom, nice to meet you, Tom. Tom and... 
Tom and Richard. Are you two related? That way around, I'm guessing. <laughs> well, welcome to the show. Uh, did, has anyone seen yet the uh, Ed Miller Band Russell Brand video? Oh my god. I mean, Ed Miliband has broken the first rule of campaigning, which is when that weird guy with a beard invites you into his house, always say no. He's gone in there and had a cup of tea with him. It is the most bizarre. You've got. What's amazing? I think Miliband's right to have done it, actually, uh, because next to Brand, even he seems fairly sensible. So, like, next to that guy, and Russell Brand is literally sat there with like rosary beads down to his like fucking ankles, with a beard in his hair, going, Yeah, but mate, this paradigm, right? This paradigm in which we're existing now, and this conduit, right? And Milliband's there going, oh, Look, Russell, firstly, uh, <laughs> look, uh, I, I challenge that. Look, I think the NHS has done great things for our people. And it's basically seven minutes of that. <laughs> Two quite weird people go, And this idea that Russell Brand is somehow the voice of disaffected Britain. I just don't understand. I think that's a totally media-generated idea. The idea that disaffected... I mean, if one I think about the area that I grew up in, inner city Nottingham, the idea that white working-class kids would go, Ed Miliband's not for me, but that guy talks about paradigm shifts. He's talking the language of the people. <laughs> I do not buy into it at all. You know, disaffection is a paradigm of a corporate American construct. Like, that in itself. Firstly, it doesn't make any sense. <laughs> doesn't even appeal to educated people or suppose like even people who understand these words don't know what you're talking about but he's done this um he's done this video with him and fair play to Miliband for being sort of bold and getting in there because he's had he's had a fair bit of support this campaign in Miliband and I think to be fair to him he's had a better campaign than most people thought it was going to have but that's only because most people expected him <laughs> to the worst campaign in the history of British politics. people expected him to be like coming down with his cock out in the morning like get a fucking happy slapped every time he wanted a selfie <laughs> People actually secretly really wanted that to happen as well. So the fact that he's kept his clothes on and hasn't fallen asleep, we're like, oh, he's raised his game a bit, hasn't he? <laughs> this blistering late burst of fall from Millie Man. But one girl on the internet was so taken with him that she started this hashtag Millie Fandom. Um, I don't know if anyone joined in on it, where they were like photoshopping him to look like a hunk on a motorbike and all this. Girls wanting selfies with him. I, think, I don't know, when I was at school, like teenage girls were into people like David Beckham or Michael Owen, or like Howard from Take That. They would never sat there going, oh my God, have you got the latest edition of Just 17? I mean, that shows how old I am. What are the girls, what are the girls mags now? Closer, Heat magazine. I've seen those pictures of Ed Miliband in Heat magazine. The way he talks about the squeezed middle is like, so dreamy. Oh my God, like he talked about fiscal policy the other day and I just felt like a tickle, you know? You know what I mean? That's slightly inappropriate. <laughs> I just don't understand it, but one of the things that they were doing there was a hashtag called Millie Bond, instead of Millie Band, where they were doing up a, a Millie Band up as James Bond. <laughs> just sort of like him with the pose, with a gun with a silence. Like, Millie Bond doesn't sound like a spy. It sounds like something you do grouting with. <laughs> Got a couple of tiles loose in the, in the kitchen, love. Chuck is that Millie Bond. <laughs> Trying to get it sorted. Some of the stuff he's been coming out with as well. The Americanisation of Ed Miliband is something that... Now, this affects certain people, often people who work in, like, policy. Do that whole, yeah, we went to a party at the weekend. When they mean party at the weekend. <laughs> and Miliband started doing it when Jeremy Paxman said to him, are you up for this fight? And he went, am I up for it? Hell yes, I'm up for it. <laughs> Hell yes! That's not how British politicians are supposed to speak, mate. This ain't my cup of tea. Hell yeah, I'm up for it. And do you know what? I'm going to kick his lily white ass to the curb. <laughs> 
I didn't need his shit, frankly, Jeremy. Look, talk to the hand. Please. It's always been bloody mad. It's party political broadcast. Have you seen it? Ed Miliband, a portrait. They've tried to do, like, the Kinnock the movie thing, but with Ed Miliband, and it's of him. It's actually quite a nice video. It's not as daft as some of the videos he's put on YouTube over the years. But it's of him sat at a desk, and it's his voiceover, and he's going, he's writing this letter. You don't get to see what it is he's writing. It says, at this election, I plan to offer myself. <laughs> it sounds a bit weird. I think it's, to offer myself to my country. And it sounds like, it sounds more like he thinks he's going into the priesthood <laughs> than he does running for parliament. And it's him just walking around, chatting to people in this solemn voiceover about, you know, this country is great, and it's got many great... It looks more like an advert for a sort of Christian retreat <laughs> than it does an invitation to vote Labour. And it's him at the end just going, although there's... It looks like he's sort of saying goodbye to the country and he's going to go on a little summer camp and then he's going to come back in a couple of months, which invariably he'll probably have to do anyway afterwards. But there's a bit... There's a bit in it where he talks about how people are disaffected. He goes, you know, the House of Commons. He talks, this is what frustrates me, is the phrases he uses in themselves are alienating. He goes, the House of Commons simply doesn't speak to the reality of daily life. What? <laughs> Who says, like, speak to, isn't it? That's a policy person's phrase, isn't it? Yeah, yeah, we've got this presentation. I think it really speaks to the fourth quarter and where we want to be by the end of 2017. <laughs> don't get kids saying, yeah, the House of Commons just really doesn't speak to the reality of my daily life. People say, they're full of shit. <laughs> but you can't even say that, can you? A lot of people get it. The House of Commons, for the most part, is full of shit. And half of them are paedophiles. <laughs> you can't really have him saying that either. Um, some of Labour's... The party political broadcast that I like the most... I'd say the weirdest one is the SNP one. I don't really want to see the SNP party political broadcast. And it's a video looking out of a dashboard driving through Scotland. So it's almost like being in a little simulator inside someone's car. They're driving through Scotland. It's raining. Very evocative. It's the most cinematic of all of them. And it's the Scottish guy going, This is home to me. This is where I'm from. And then he drives around Scotland and no word of a lie. He goes, Sure. We can be an argumentative bunch. And it shows you a guy arguing with his girlfriend in the street, going, fuck it. <laughs> and, then, and then hugging her. Like, Why are you bringing this up at a party where they call broadcast? Show me like a bit of a scrap. Class the odd gay, but that's who we are, eh? We'll always say sorry for SMP. <laughs> what the hell? Like, no other, no other country would do that. I want to stand to be President of the United States of America. Sure as hell we shoot the shit out of some innocent gas. We're all right, really. My word. Some of the, some of the coverage... This has been, in many ways, the most balmy election that I can remember. It's also the most uninspiring, particularly if you're this side of the border. But just tragic in many ways, but very funny. The Sunday Telegraph, this Sunday, uh, did an interview with the seven party leaders. They asked them seven questions. I don't know if anyone else saw this. But for each of the questions, they all give fairly political answers. You know, what would you do in your first year? What's your main priority for a first term? The seventh question is the one that gives the most insight into these people's personalities, because they all answer it very differently. And the seventh question is, if you could change one thing about yourself, what would it be? Now, these answers vary wildly. <laughs> right? Ed Miliband, arguably the most normal of all the answers, says... I would always like to spend more time with my wife, Justine, and our children, Daniel and Sam. Good politician's answer, right? Solid. <laughs> Leanne Wood, leader of Plate Cymru. <laughs> what one thing would you like to change about yourself? I'd like to be able to cook. 
that something you could have addressed before now? <laughs> right? <laughs> These get weirder and weirder. Right, what's the next one to read out? Oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, Nick Clegg, egomaniac. Check this out. What one thing would you change about yourself? I'd be Prime Minister. <laughs> Cocky little shit. Hey. I mean, I've had to think about how I could improve. There's literally only one way. That's in the world of work. I excel in the bedroom and everywhere else. Uh, Cameron, bit of a... Interesting, not that funny. What one thing would you change about yourself? He says, I wish I'd worked harder at speaking another language. You know, fairly interesting. French. French, yeah, exactly, yeah. Uh, Nicola Sturgeon. What one thing would you change about yourself? I wish I wasn't a fleet of dogs, but I am. <laughs> quite nice, that, isn't it? the only thing I agree with her on. <laughs> no, I'm quite scared of dogs as well, actually. Yeah, I might move up there. Um, now this. Oh, I don't know which one to read out, because two of them... These are the last two from Farage and Natalie Bennett are off the fucking scale, right? <laughs> oh! I'm going to do Farage first. Farage, what one thing would you change about yourself? This is but... Oh! I think I'm too tolerant sometimes. <laughs> <laughs> Oh my god! And then, he's not finished, it's just incredible that you think this is. And then, and then he, get, he gets quite emotional. Like, I think these are the words of a jilted man. When it comes to loyalty, I often offer too much. Even to people who've let me down repeatedly. Maybe I need to be a bit more cutthroat. Now, my favourite is Natalie Bennett, these are the Greens. This. She is... Com I don't know if she's just misunderstood this question. <laughs> what? But she's... Oh, my God. This is incredible. What one thing would you change about yourself to the leader of a political party? I would love to be able to draw people. <laughs> I would love to be able to draw people and animals. I can do buildings. <laughs> but not living things. <laughs> what the hell was she thinking? <laughs> Oh my God. She's incredible, isn't she, Natalie Bennett? Like, I watched the leaders' debates, the, like the one where they had them all on. Natalie Bennett's sort of whole um, manner, where she looks like she's, I think, in a fat or puke. <laughs> Every time she speaks about something, she's rushing a lot. It often looks like she's got to trap Rick, pardon, that was me, Jeremy, sorry about that. Really unfortunate manner for a political leader. Then you had, uh, I don't know if people saw the one where it was all the leaders. That was quite interesting. Miliband. <laughs> Well, Clegg was the work, because Clegg was still doing what he was doing in 2010. That whole thing of going, uh, well, look, I think John raises you know, an interesting... Well, look, John, you know, these sort of fake deals between you know, the Tories and, uh, and the Labour Party, frankly, would shortchange, you, you know, the country. You've just done a deal for the past five years. Where have you fucking been, mate? And when David Cameron tells you, uh, about, you know, sort of working people and how much he, he cares about them. You know, ask the Conservatives where the money has gone. No. You work in the next office, mate. <laughs> you ask him, right? You're his mate. Like, don't fucking put it on me. I can't get hold of him. <laughs> Text him. You do anyway. Like, what's the matter with you? Miliband was so odd. So Miliband didn't know whether... A lot of them just aimed it right down the lens. Probably the best thing to do, because the biggest audience, of course, was the one at home, not the one uh, in the live studio audience. Uh, but Miliband couldn't decide whether he wanted to talk to the person specifically or straight down the lens. So he'd sort of do half and half, but it made it look like he was either a really shit telepresenter or someone off like a hair and head and shoulders advert. Like a really odd thing to go, 
Look, John, I think you raised a, an interesting point. You know, and I think, actually, you know, I don't think the government does enough for you at home. <laughs> now, why was almost like I was going, that's why when I shave at the gym, I like to feel fresh on the walk home. <laughs> Head and shoulders is the only thing, frankly, that will do that for me. I don't know why I shave with it. He's weird, though, isn't he? Leanne Wood, Leanne Wood who kept looking. Leanne Wood, who sounded like she'd won the competition to be here. I can't believe I'm on this stage. I'm next to the Prime Minister, representing Wales. Was that someone who won like a public speaker? Such a poor public speaker. We will ensure that austerity is ended, because it is unfair. In Wales. <laughs> <laughs> well, and they all love the fact that you can that. Farage, of course, I've spoken to so many people since these debates where people said, I mean, Farage really put his foot in it, didn't he? Really put his foot in it when he said that people with HIV shouldn't be treated here. And like, firstly, you fall into his trap because there's no way that was on the spot. He planned to say that deliberately because he's not going for the same group of voters that Labour, you know, the swing voters, Lib Dems, Tory, Labour, and in Scotland, SNP, Labour switchers, they're not people who are naturally going to, necessarily going to go UKIP. A lot of the Labour vote will go to UKIP, sadly, but the, those middle ground ones... So when you've got all those others competing, Farage's entire tactic is to say, I'm completely different. The only way he can be completely different is often by being homophobic, <laughs> very cruel about foreign people. And that's how... The, the, so then his voters at home go, right, well, I understand that they're all in a little club together and he's out on his own. Uh, but he's such a gift to everyone else on the panel because you can tell sometimes Miliband didn't really convince the room, Clegg didn't convince the room, Cameron was struggling to convince the room. Even at times Sturgeon, who probably had the best performance, was struggling to get them all. What one thing would guarantee them a round of applause was just having a pop at Farage. You could see them almost doing it like mid-sentence. Like they'd go, look, you know, of course tuition fees were a major issue and yes, we legislated for it. Uh, and I understand, Jeremy, look, where your concern comes from. Uh, all I'm saying is that we would bring it down from 9,000 to 6,000. Wouldn't get a round of applause. You go, but let me just say this. <laughs> <laughs> the politics of UKIP have no place in this country. They <laughs> <laughs> were all loving it. They couldn't wait to get a stage I just want to see UKIP have no place in a modern Britain. Yeah. <laughs> we were absolutely loving it. Sturgeon is a fascinating... Um, like, in terms of body language, because what she says, actually, the, the SNP and Labour manifestos are as identical as two manifestos you'll get in this election. Mansion tax, 50p top rate, no rise in VAT. Very, very close in terms of public spending. In fact, the IFS um, says that Labour's is more left-wing than the SNP. So there's a fascinating phenomenon that's going on at the moment. But Sturgeon obviously feels so different and so fresh compared to these stale, male, middle-class, white, British, you know, specifically English, Politician, so this sort of stands out a bit, but actually, she's not that different. If I was to read you the profile of Nicola Sturgeon, politicised at 14, joined a political party at 16, has been involved in it ever since, only briefly having a bit of time off, but still a member to go into law and marrying a senior member of a party, you wouldn't say actually that feels like someone completely out of the normal political process. You'd say that was someone who was part of the same conveyor belt that a lot of them are. It's just a conveyor belt that was in a different part of the country. Frankly, that's what the only difference is. But uh, she's got wonderful body language. She sort of bounces her end a lot. I don't know if you notice that. So those things are actually quite, not that inspirational. We will legislate for modest increases in public spending, 0.5% of GDP over the next five years. I think, that's actually quite a shit thing. Oh, 
you're 0.5%, Nicola, you are spoiling us. But because she does it in that, what's really odd is she shakes her head at everything she says, that I really care about Scotland, I really care about what's going on in this, I really care about working people. I know that she does, but it seems odd to just be constantly stood there shaking her head. And occasionally she'll go say, say she needs a bit more energy like that. She's better than Jim Murphy, oh my God, Scotland. Scottish Labour's part of political broadcast was bizarre. It's a video of like Scotland, like, and they always do these things, you know, panning shots of rivers, of mountain ranges, of stuff like that, people welding, classic Labour Party political broadcast, a kid in a swimming pool, all that sort of stuff, right? But voiced over by Jim Murphy, a man who I really like, but let's be honest, has one of the most least charismatic, one of the most least, one of the least charismatic voices in British politics. I don't know if people can, I don't think I've, I interviewed Jim Murphy in Scotland, but he has, he has the charisma of a, of, he sounds deaf. <laughs> it's not a good voice for a, for a voiceover, is it? You know, if Jim Murphy was to talk normally, he'd talk like that, he'd say, I'm Jim Murphy, I'm leader of Scottish Labour, but he doesn't talk like that, I'm Jim Murphy, I think it's actually important. <laughs> Fight this campaign. <laughs> I understand why people voted yes. A lot of my family voted yes. Couldn't actually hear him say it at the time, but didn't think they were voting yes. Scottish Labour understands that. Got a very, very odd manner about it. Always creates a little bit of tension, doesn't it, when you say he sounds like he's deaf. <laughs> Needless tension, I think we call that in comedy. Uh, <laughs> the Tory manifesto, by the way, I don't know if people have read the different manifestos. The Tory one has some, of all of them, some of the weirdest phrases in it. And some of, I have to say, some of the most patronising phrases in it. I've, I've got some of my favourite lines here. Just proper, these are people who are so manipulative. There's one bit where they almost try and convince you that it's time is different. See if you can spot this phrase. He goes, you have to ask yourself, which party is best placed to keep our economy strong? The team which has delivered the growing economy we have today, or the party which left behind a ruined economy just five short years ago? <laughs> it's five years ago. Now, you're not going to convince me it was less time. By putting the word short in there, it was only five short years ago, wasn't it? Not like the five long years of prosperity we've had since. You can't do that in any other situation, can you? You can't go, wow, they were 15 of the longest sex seconds of sexual pleasure I've had in my life. <laughs> five years ago, this is another bit, not short years anymore, they dropped that. Britain was reeling from the chaos of Labour's Great Recession. Two big capital letters on there. The Great Recession has given way to the Great Revival. That's what they call in this period now, the Great Revival. The Great, you always remember where you were, weren't you, children? The Great Revival of 2015. GDP at 0.3%. There was only two million people back on the dole back then. It was like a festival. <laughs> Fucking idiots. <laughs> this one, this is, this is, this is the most patronising thing you will find in any party political manifesto this year, and I absolutely love it. We will reduce net spending by 1% each year. That means saving one pound for every hundred pounds the government spends. I know what fucking one percent is, mate. It's Labour's share of the vote in Scotland. It's close to nothing. Uh, are people excited by it next week? Yeah. Yeah. Who well, I'll tell you what, because I did an opinion poll on who you wanted to win. Who do you think's going to win? Give me a chance if you think Ed Miliband will be the next Prime Minister. Yeah. Yes. <laughs> really begrudging. Yes. I suppose so. Mm -hmm. Give me two if you think David Cameron will be the next Prime Minister. Yeah. Yeah. He will be. You what? He will be. He will be? Yeah, the Scottish Nationals won't do a deal. The SNP won't do a deal with Labour? 
Is it not more likely that Labour won't do a deal with the SNP? <laughs> I don't know, no, no, but this is fascinating. I'm not having a go. This, so do you think, even though they've offered one, they'll then renege? Yes, yeah, so it's in their interest long-term. It's in their interest long-term to have... Conservatives in government. OK, and who would you support? Labour. So, uh, can you vote up in Scotland? No. I love you. That's the problem. All the Labour voters have moved down here. <laughs> Going to end up like. Does it worry you though? Yeah. <laughs> like, yeah, 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 yeah. Fucking hell. Everything is rapidly declining, including the fucking. Not just the Scottish economy, the fucking size of this microphone stand. But it's interesting, isn't it? So, like, are your friends up there all going to vote SNP? Is it as big as. None of my friends, none of my family. But we've got a lot of SNP votes. But, like, people you know, are they saying, like, the SNP are going to yeah. be triumphant here? Yeah. And how's that make you feel? Sick. Sick? Oh dear. You'll be all right though, won't you, mate? I'll see you. Yeah, yeah. We'll be back next month. I mean, I'll be here to help you. Whereabouts do you live now? Uh, Bracknell. Bracknell. Are there many Scottish people there? Uh, not many Labour people there. <laughs> so, how are people going to vote in Bracknell? Very conservative. Bloody hell, mate. Glutton for punishment, aren't you? <laughs> Where are you going to move next? <laughs> Leave a party member, but yes, giving up. <laughs> you should just move. I was going to say move to a safe Labour heartland, but <laughs> until last time, that was Scotland. <laughs> could be none left anywhere. So, well, ladies and gentlemen, um, it feels like we've got a good atmosphere in the room. Obviously, we have a guest in the second half that is, I think it's fair to say, unlike any guest we've had here before. Um, but I would always say that, um, and you've, everyone who's been here before has been excellent in providing respectful uh, and tolerant atmosphere towards people, even if we've disagreed. I think it's really important that we keep that true tonight. Obviously, if people say things that you disagree with, I'll come into the audience uh, at the end for questions, but I think it's really important to keep this as a positive experience as possible, because we're going to hear from someone in the second half that I think it's fair to say... <laughs> ..has a very different opinion of politics and has a very different view of the world. And I don't mean that in a pejorative sense. You're talking to someone who really does think differently, perhaps, about the future of this country. So I think it's actually arguably the most exciting night we've had down here, and I hope you will show um, the respect that, uh, that you have done to previous guests. Uh, ladies and gentlemen, it's time now for you to grab a drink. I'll be Matt Ford. I'll see you in a bit. Cheers. Thank you. Hello. Right. Well, here we go. Let's get everything neat and tidy. Um, well, I sort of said it at the end of the last half about um, having a, a respectful atmosphere, and I hope that... Um, continues, uh, because we're about to hear from someone who is, you know, I think politically in terms of... I mean, when you think about what mainstream politics is and where you consider UKIP to be, you know, this is somewhere else. <laughs> um, so, but nevertheless, there's someone with ideas, there's someone who's, you know, a leading voice in, in British politics in many ways. So, uh, without further ado, please do give a respectful welcome to Tommy Robinson. Have <laughs> a seat. Welcome to the show. Thank you. You alright? I feel like I'm in a straitjacket, man. Unbutton it, it's fine. Not too much weight. You'll be alright. Right, um, so, it, it, at the start there, when we were talking about people who weren't going to vote, I think that was you at the back who said you won't vote for anyone. I say I'm not voting. I'm not on an electoral roll. Oh. <laughs> Sounds like there's more to it. Yeah, that's more for security reasons. Okay. If you were on the electoral roll, which of the parties would you be most inclined to vote for, do you think? I haven't voted. I've never voted. Um, but if I was inclined... So this is... The growing thing you see with UKIP is so many working-class people who are, who are probably 
predominantly Labour originals, all my family from generation would be Labour voters, where Labour have betrayed us in towns like Luton, you'll see them voting UKIP. But the reality is, are UKIP a working class men's party? People are being drawn to them on immigration, EU, and that's it. So whether UKIP take that on board and now start trying to represent working class people, then uh, it remains to see. I think that's, that is entirely what I, I think that's probably the most accurate assessment of how you could appeal and the fundamental flaw in the you could appeal in terms of its... And a beer. And a beer, indeed. Um, <laughs> I just wonder, in terms of your own political direction, whether standing for Parliament is something that would ever appeal to you? No, not at present. Um, I always said I didn't want to be involved in politics. So although I, we started the English Defence League, I never saw it as political. It's turned out that way. And we were a single issue group. We didn't even mention immigration. A lot of people think the English Defence League were opposed to immigration. My mum was an immigrant. So everyone I know are sons of immigrants who I've grown up with. So people have a misconception about what we were about. We were a single issue group. And we, we fought hard to keep it that way. As I was leading it, we fought hard to say we're not, we're not talking about any other issues. Simply the Islamisation of Britain. But the danger with it was that probably that you did attract people that did have those views. Of course. It was a nationalistic organisation. We attracted all sorts of people. And um, for the first few years, there was a complete battle within the organisation to keep them out. In terms of disaffected people, then, um, do you think Russell Brand does appeal to <laughs> the disaffected? If Russell Brand walked onto the estate I'm from in Luton, he'd get battered and chased out. <laughs> and that is the reality. If he walked into any working class estate in Luton, so when I, it's exactly the same, I see it, and it's just a, it's a champagne socialist. But you were, you were for a while, you know, and arguably the views were misplaced, but you were for a while a voice of disaffected, specifically white working class Britain. Like what, in terms of, because I come from a white working class background, but I sort of live down here now, I, I think I know what people are pissed off about, but I might be wrong. Like, what are the issues facing, do you think, predominantly the disaffected, in, almost specifically in England, but in Britain today? The way they've been forgotten. So in towns and cities like Luton, you don't feel part of the fabric of society. Everything, when you've got an encroaching or ever-growing Islamic community who vote in a military fashion, they, they are, they are organised in the way they vote, and they have the leader of the council of the mosques, which will do deals with the local Labour council. Nothing else matters. Nothing else matters. You see in towns like Luton, where, but when the English Defence League started, I took a journalist up to the park on the estate we're from. So that's from 1970. That park is from 1970. We walk down the road to the Islamic community, that's £350,000, state-of-the-art park. The kids don't have to pay for community centres. They all get free community centres because they're in a run-down area. So all these different things you see growing up, and it's sort of a two-tier funding system. You see a two-tier policing system in the way the two communities are policed differently. And that's not necessarily the Muslim community's fault. It's the pandering and appeasing by people within the government and the council. For example, even now, in the build-up to this election, there was a meeting on Monday night in an area called Sundon Park where the local Labour Council shut down four libraries in the town and everyone was up in arms over it. And we found out that they've sold one of the libraries, which is valued at £80,000. It's been sold under the table to a Muslim organisation. It's now opening as a mosque. This is how politics in towns like Luton is working. And that's why people feel so aggravated and angry about it and that politicians really... Over the years, many politicians will go to university and then they'll leave university, they'll get a career in a different town or city, they've either been to private schools. They don't have that community feeling. And I, I realised this from, a, I've done a documentary called Proud and Prejudice and the lad was from Oxford University 
and he came to my local pub on a Friday, and at the end he said, I can't believe this. I said, what? He said, everyone knows everyone. I've never experienced a community like this. I said, well, that's our community, yeah? and it's, being get, it's, it's getting destroyed with incomers into an estate. Not West Indian incomers or, or St. Lucian or Jamaican, because that's always been the mixture of where I've lived. But when you've got a, a fifth column who are coming into an estate who are not willing to integrate, not willing to in assimilate, are, are very, very different in ideological and extremist beliefs. It causes big problems. But you're talking specifically there about all Muslims or about... No, not all Muslims. Yeah. My, my two best friends in, in school were Imran and Cameron, identical Afghani twins. Yeah? A lot of my friends, which people, I think, all through the years of leading the English Defence League, people used to think I make it up. When I got married, at the height of the English Defence League, I had six Muslim lads come to my wedding. So I've never hated Muslims. We have some great banter about it amongst our friends, but I do have an issue with the ideology that they follow, whether a nice Muslim or a bad Muslim. I've read the Quran. A lot of people who criticise me, or they, they say anything to me, I say, have you read the Quran? Have you read the Hadiths? Have you read the biography of Muhammad? Have you read any, any, any of it? And the answer is no. I say, well, you are ignorant on this issue. I'm not. I've spent five, six years now studying it and reading it. And the more I find, the more alarmed, alarmed I am with it. And a lot of people... Um, a lot of people have an issue, I think, with the truth, and they don't like hearing the truth. And I always, I said to you before that, anything you ask me, I will tell you the truthful answer from my heart. And, and that's what I do. And people don't like it. Isn't there a danger, though, when you judge religious people on their books? That if you were to take the Old Testament of the Bible, for instance, you would find some fairly medieval stuff in there. Yeah. Uh, you know, an eye for an eye and things like that. You wouldn't then say that people who go you know, to a church book group and ring bells at the weekend necessarily want to gouge other people's eyes out. No, but in Luton, we had... In Unless they died there's gouged out in, first. In, in, <laughs> in 2004, see, the, the English Defence League started in 2009. In 2004, I was 21 years old, and we had the Beslan Massacre. If many people remember the Beslan Massacre, where they... Do you remember that? I remember it vaguely. Where I'd they got three or four hundred school children, and they butchered them out in Chechnya. And I remember being 21 years old, and, th and the next week, I was saw online, and it was Muslims from Luton, and they were saying that they hoped this happened in, in a British school. And that was my moment when I was 21 and I started reading and I started looking. And I found that this group, group were called, were called Al-Majradeen, which now are a prescribed terrorist organisation. 60% of the Muslims in, in, in prison for terrorism are ex-members of that group. Well, their head office was four streets around from where I lived. And I'm reading this thinking, what is happening? And the more I'm reading, they're, they're organised. And this is the same group that protests against our soldiers. It's the same group that, that were... Uh, Michael Adabalajo was an ex-member of, it's the same group that Richard Dart's brother, all these terrorists were a group of, they were unchallenged and the hatred they were spewing and every Saturday they had a place in Luton Town Centre outside Don Miller's Bakery. So that, for me that's when this started and in 2004 I made leaflets talking about sexual exploitation and grooming of non-Muslim girls, that happened to my cousin in Luton as well. All these issues, um, whites and blacks are being religiously and racially targeted by Pakistani Muslim gangs exactly the same. When I was 12 years old, um, you can look the murder up, of the murder of Mark Sharp. It was my uncle's best friend and his son was my age. They snapped a knife off in his head. There was explosions of violence in the town. And all the way through growing up, I didn't really understand it. I went to school and in our school, as I said, I had Muslim friends, but when we got outside our classes, it was us and them. And there was a Muslim playground and a non-Muslim playground. Not, a race, not, not racially divided, religiously divided. And it was only, as I said, when I started looking into this group and realising that this group had been based in Luton since the 80s with Omar Bakri, Abu Hamza, 
they've been when none of us knew what Islam was, they were promoting and radicalising the youth, and we're still bearing the brunt of that now. Is there? A, I mean, all this is put into sharp focus, isn't it, by events in places like Rotherham, where for so long, when people like you said this sort of thing, I think majority of people in this room would have said that's probably not factually correct. You're probably trying to twist things. I've been ridiculed for years over it. In this new context, I think actually people are more likely to listen to what you've got to say on these sort of things. Yeah. Is it true, do you think, that British authorities have turned a blind eye to particular communities and their oh, They've completely crimes? turned a blind eye on, on, every, on every sense. On every sense. And, and that's happening. What, what, you, what people need to realise is with, with the Rotherham Report, that's, cha that's child grooming... The, that's it. You say it out loud. They allowed the rape of 1,400 children through fear of being called racist. That's what, and that hasn't just happened in Rotherham. That happened across, happened in every town and sea. And in the same way that they turned a blind eye to that, they've turned a blind eye to many other crimes and many other things that are going on, racial attacks against non against whites and, uh, and blacks. And that's going on across the board. So well, we're, and I've seen that. And I always say, look, I don't talk about... I'm not talking about what I've read in a book. I'm talking about life experience. I'm talking about, look... I've seen this. I mean, this is what I've experienced growing up. And, as, and I should point out, majority of Muslims I've met are great people, and majority. But that should not stop me from pointing out there is a huge problem here. And if we're not going to address that huge problem now, and we're going to keep on pretending that everything's fine and hunky-dory, then we're going to leave my three children that are growing up in a town that's plagued by these problems to pick up the pieces. Do you think it's always right to frame it as a Muslim problem, though, because you get white English paedophiles. You know, you had the police certainly for a long time in this country institutionally racist against non-white communities and the murder of the Stephen majority. Lawrence and the things that the McPherson report yeah. found. You know, there are legitimate grievances on both sides of British society in that regard. The majority of paedophiles in Britain are white. Of course, the majority of people in Britain are white, 90%. This actual phenomenon that we're talking about is not... It's something completely new. It's not organised criminal gangs. It's brothers, uncles, cousins and work colleagues who are who for somehow it's accepted within these groups to pass 12 13 year old girls around and if you just what we keep hearing across the press it is asian grooming gangs 50% of asians in britain are not muslim yeah all of these gangs not in fact 90% of convictions in these cases have been muslim not all pakistani you've had afghanis you've had north african this issue and it's and no what i can't get is if we want to stop it and solve it, we have to get to the root cause of why it's happening. And then we have ISIS and Boko Haram, whole states and organisations who are openly slaying. We are taking non-Muslim women as sexual slaves as, because Allah has commanded us. And it's, it's all within the ideology. Then we should, if, it's, if that's not the reason, we should at least be able to explore it without being called an Islamophobe. I know you're talking about if Ed Miliband, if, if Miliband gets in. He's just said that he'll make... Islamophobia or hate crime. Yeah. So for me, I'll, I'll be going back to jail. <laughs> <laughs> it just seems odd to make a phobia a crime, doesn't it? Well, you know? a phobia is an irrational fear. I think yeah. it's quite rational to fear things when you, you've actually got 360 terrorists arrested in the last 12 months. You've got a whole state where 2,000 British Muslims have left to gone and rape, pillage and murder people. That's not, it shouldn't be classed as a phobia. It's, it's quite rational to be fearful of these things. And it's rational in to look at the demographic and look at the changing face. So I just look at my hometown. We've got 27, 28 mosques in the town and majority of them aren't a problem, but embedded in them, we've got some Salafi Wahhabi mosques which are causing big problems, which completely encourage non-integration, non-assimilation. They despise our culture and our way of life. And to leave them alone and forget about them and just pretend and try to ignore it and brush it under carpet, which is what we did in Rotherham, you're just gonna leave everything to build up and build up where it's gonna explode at some point. So, and it, well, 
in many ways it already has in terms of you know British-born Muslims at seven seven, uh, British-born um, Muslims, uh, Islamists is probably a, a more accurate term, isn't it? Because it's about it, the political ideology rather than the. It's the same itself. as someone wishing to enforce their interpretation of Islam on the rest of society. That's the breakdown for Islamists. But what Islamist does is it makes pe- it makes a lot of people who have, are uncomfortable with saying anything about Islam. We can all then use this word to bracket it under. Because the reality is all the things that we find, I find alarming and disgusting, like my local mosque in January put out a five-page statement as to why apostates should be killed. That's the year 2015 mm. in Luton. And the main mosque is saying that apostates should be killed. We're, not going, we're going backwards. And, and, then to, and I just think it's cowardice not to, not to highlight these issues. And although, look, I'm the first to say, it, the, the way the English Defence League went about many things... Um, we deserve criticism. But at the same time, five, six years ago, no one, wanted to talk to, no one would talk to us. Still no one would talk to us. The Labour Council wouldn't talk to us. We, we don't, before the English Defence League started, I contacted the council and we set up a petition because what had happened is it was a soldier's homecoming parade and um, Scott Muntridge died. He's from our estate in that, and my other friend lost his legs in that same regiment. So we've turned up and this same group, Al-Majradeen, have attack the troops, they're spitting at them, calling them baby killers, they spat in Scott's mum's face. Police protected them to do so, and they took them through the town hall, and they actually arrested three other Luton lads that day for trying to get at the Muslim protesters. It, for us, it wasn't the fa- fact that this group had done that, because in that group, one of my old friends who I grew up with, he's, he's a convert, one of the, main, the ginger, famous... Yeah, yeah, I grew yeah. up with him, I used to be good friends with him, Roger. His, name, his name's now Ibrahim, but... And another one, Beaky, I went to school with them. So that's what I mean, these ain't a million miles away. The Stockholm bomber lived two doors up for my auntie. We know these people. We've grown, we've grown up with them. So we know their hatred and ideology. It was the fact that the council, police, everyone had prior knowledge that they were going to attack our troops. And they let them. So for us, it was then, um, why should any of our families, when they walk through town centre, have to brush shoulders with these back, scumbags? So we set up a petition. We tried to contact the council and we were stonewalled. Stonewalled. It was then that we took to the streets. The manner in which you took to the streets obviously was, in the end, highly violent. Um, well, the very first time we took to the streets, this is where, again, it comes down to, for us, unfair treatment. We organised a... It was for everyone from the community. My aunties come, people brought their kids, and we were having a support our troops rally. And as soon as we come to walk through the town, the police stopped us. Yeah? And as, as everyone was turning up, they put cameras in our faces, they put their hands in our pockets... To, like, to say your name, say your date of birth, making us take our shoes off in the town centre. Now, I was there when they protested against our soldiers. And these are some of the country's most radical Muslims. They didn't put cameras in their faces. They didn't stop them. They didn't search them. They didn't, they didn't take their shoes off. They didn't put their hands on them. Yeah? And as we went to walk through, a, a police officer knocked my friend's teeth out, a little black lad, holding, holding a banner saying, National Front, go to hell, because yeah? we wanted the National Front to know they're not welcome in Luton. He lost his teeth. Police horse flattened my uncle. So... After this, we thought, you've just let that happen to our soldiers. We're in Luton. All we ever hear about Luton is terrorism this, terrorism that. It's our town. And now you've prevented us from even getting to a war memorial. So after that, yeah, people put balaclavas on and weren't about to let them say no again. Well, there were highly violent clashes, weren't there, with the EDL around the country in places like Dudley in, in the northwest, yeah, there was, yeah. uh, in Leicester. Um, and I think most of us watched on with horror this sort of looked like a football hooligan element, just really enjoying spreading terror. I mean, was that something that you were well, what it was, concerned about at the time? I started the English Defence League. I started it as the United People of Luton to oppose this group. And what happened was 
six weeks after do attacking our troops in Luton, they held a Islamic roadshow in Birmingham and they had a placard, a big banner that said Jesus was a Muslim. And it's outside the ball ring shopping centre. And they stopped this 11-year-old boy called Sean and they got him up in front of them. And they converted him to Islam that day. And I remember sitting there watching that. After what's happened to our soldiers, I thought, now this group are taking the piss. Yeah? How are they allowed to do this? There's police officers standing there. So I thought, we'll see the response. There was no response. So I, it was only after that that we went from a group of lads in Luton, we said, we're going to Birmingham. And when we went, went to Birmingham, we got bad. We got badly beaten. And you can watch all the videos. It was after that. But did you go there wanting a fight? No, we went there to highlight it. We held placards. and we, our, our original placard said, Muslim, no problem. Extremist, Muslim, big problem. Yeah? Yeah. We are with the victims of jihad in, in Nigeria. Because I know a lot of people now what's going on in Nigeria. We was following it five years ago, six years ago. So we went up there for that. And Salma Yacoub, a local Muslim politician, told them all we were the BNP. And um, they all got down and prayed in Town Centre and then charged through. And it, every innocent white person in the street basically got beat up. After that... The, how many female school teachers were going to be attracted to coming on the street to protest against this issue? What it attracted then was like-minded lads, which people would stereotypically call fo football hooligans. And at the same time, I was 25 years old. I hadn't planned this. It was just snowball, snowball, snowball. I went from working on a building site to six months later leading the biggest street protest movement Europe's seen. So I'd never been involved in politics. And, uh, and it, did, it did snowball... What I realised then was the attraction and the anger across the country. Every town and city, it spread across everywhere. But is this disaffection? Because I think whenever you see documentaries about uh, like young, white and angry, or whatever they're called, or proud and pre you know, any sort of pun on prejudice, um, is that people, some of them articulate a particular concern that people in the mainstream have about radical Islam, but also these people themselves are leading lives whether through their own fault or through the economic situation that they're living in, they're not happy, they yep. often feel loners themselves. I mean, is that fair? Is, that, is, that, is there not an irony in the fact that a lot of members of the EDL are a mirror reflection of the sorts of people that are attracted to extremism? They're exactly the same people. Um, that, 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 is, that is very true. You've got, you've got people searching for an identity. That's what you have, yeah? and, and we don't have that identity. Uh, in, in, in Luton, for example, St George's Day, when it comes to St George's Day, they send letters out to all the kids at the schools. If you bring in the emblem of St George, you'll be suspended from school. Is that true? Because that sounds like the sort of thing that's, a cabbie would say. That's a fact. It, it's a fact. So Icknield High School, and it, when this happened that year, we contacted the council again. But the message they send out to our kids is that they should be ashamed of who they are. And, and, and it, we have a huge St. Patrick's Day celebration. When it's St. Lucian Day, I go down to it, because a lot of my friends are there. We have massive celebrations. When it's Eid, they have fairgrounds. Everything you can think of. When it's our day to celebrate our culture, our history, diddly squat. Yeah? So that feeling of not, have, not being able to celebrate who you are and all these things, or not your community broke down, the English Defence League gave people that. And I felt it myself. I went along and it felt like camaraderie and people come from... You're all in it together. And it gave people back that feeling. And, uh, and that's what I think a lot of people are searching for. As you, as you said, a lot of people... Um, the thing that's wound me up over the years is you get radio shows or you get debates and people go looking for the unintelligent working-class kid mm. and they belittle him. But what they don't realise is when they're belittling him, it's him that's going back to a town like Rotherham. And it's him that, although he can't art articulate why he's angry and why, why he's so aggressive, he's got a reason for being angry. And a lot of things that are happening are affecting him and they're not affecting the person usually who's on the end of the radio or who's on the TV who's 
pretty much mugging them off. And that's one thing that wound me up over the years. And a lot, that's why a lot of people within the English Defence League would say that I articulated their argument. I, I think you did, and highly effectively. In terms of organising then, you went from this sort of one protest, it then changed its personality to some degree, and then all of a sudden you are in charge of this huge street protest movement. In, in practical terms, how did you organise that? Because it just felt like all of a sudden this was highly organised, there were different networks out there, there was branding, there was merchandise. <laughs> that was literally just... That was literally just um, you see the T-shirts? So from 2004, I made T-shirts in Luton, which had the Luton Town crest, and it said, no surrender to Al-Qaeda. So it was just an add-on from that, a development from that. But for the first 12 months, I wore a balaclava. How, how did the club feel about that? Yeah, they weren't too happy, but <laughs> we are, we are Luton. I love Luton, and the club know how much we love the town. So, but um, it, was just a, it was just a development from that. For the first 12 months, I wore a balaclava, and no one, no one knew who I was. That's why I used a different name. I used the name Tommy Robinson. Even my mum, when it came out who I was, my mum didn't know it was me. <laughs> so there's this big thing going on, and I was, originally I was using different names. Um, well, there was Andrew McMaster. I used the name, no, the first name I used, which you can see how it, originally it was just a bit of banter, I used Wayne King. Yeah. <laughs> so Victoria Derbyshire introduced me and said, said now we've got Wayne King and I was like yeah. <laughs> gotcha this started as a prank call it started off yeah and it started off with just it, and it was me giving my opinion and it just and it grew and it grew and I used Tommy Robinson and um, Andrew McMaster that's my friend's passport that I used to uh, illegally enter America <laughs> so that was that was the so you were able to get into America. It was, then, it was, was it then when you were trying to get back that the I, issue occurred? I went to America in 2010. So the English Defence League's just hit off. I'm on the plane and we're talking to these air hostesses who are giving us all free drinks because we're going there for September 11th. And um, we were going to meet... Uh, so what were you going... We were going there for September 11th to pay respects. All right, OK. Yeah. So, and also we had meetings lined up with like-minded characters in America, but not working-class <laughs> people. OK. When and you say I, characters... Um, influential, quite influential people. Are they sort of on the far right? No, not far right. No, again, it's like people's opinion. You know, like, I despise the far right. The majority of people in the English Defence League would hate the National Front, these sort of organisations. We're but called far right simply... If you went through most of their views, yeah, you'll have a lot of left-wing people there, you'll have a lot of liberal people there. I say a lot of my views are quite liberal. I have a problem with the Islamic ideology. That's it. Okay. When it comes to all other issues... But you don't meet many, you know, when you saw the English Defence League, you wouldn't hear many people talking about recycling or... No, we were... Oh, no. We, we were... No. We, and I'm not bothered about that either. We, we, was a, we was a single issue party, but to, to automatically bracket everyone as far right because you were... If, if, I, if all I spoke about and opposed was Scientology, no one would call me far right. Ide Islam as an ideology is the same as Scientology. They're both ideologies. You can be any colour, any race. You can leave it, you can join it. Well, you can't leave it because you get killed, but you can join it. So to, to automatically, people just throw this... They, to silence the debate and argument, yeah. you're racist. You're far-right. Because that shuts everything up, then. But a lot of the behaviour suggested that it was far-right, didn't it? You know, you had EDM members making Nazi salutes on rallies. We want our country back. A lot of the language was yeah, very yeah. synonymous with yeah. the history of the far-right in this country. Yeah. So it did attract... It did, it did attract, and it, this is what I said about what I've done at Oxford University. In the first six months of the English Defence League, we held a press conference where me, 20 of us, 10 black lads, 10 white lads, held out a swash flag, and we set fire to it. We burned it. And this was us telling the far right, you're not welcome. Uh, my convictions, I don't know if you're going to list through my convictions, one of my convictions is for knocking out someone for doing a Nazi salute at a demonstration. I, I then had... And when I say 
look, a lot of people believe, on, if they're on the left, that they oppose fascism and racism. We more than opposed it. We set fire to their flags. We called out blood and honour. We called out Combat 18. We had fights with them. Mm. We actually called it on with them. I had a phone call one day from... But that, isn't that... It, I, understand, I understand the logic of saying that you're vehemently opposed to them, therefore you, you, you want to physically oppose them. Not but physically. Well, I can't... It, it, if someone done a Nazi salute in front of me, I wouldn't help myself but smack them. I've sort of grown up over the years, but that's who I was when I was 26 years old. And... At the same time, I got a phone call one day from um, a Nazi, Nick Gregor, Nick McGregor, and the phone call was to hand over all power of the English Defence League, or my address goes online. That's what this phone call was coming. And he's speaking in a German accent, so I've told him, basically, to fuck off. This is, I didn't realise, I've gone and said to my mate, I've just had this geezer, Nazi Nick Gregor, and my mate's like, do you know who that is? I went, no. He goes, mate, he's the most famous Nazi in the world. He tried well, to over- second mode. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, nice, I'll give you that. <laughs> oh, I'm glad we got that tension out. <laughs> yeah, so he's... <laughs> yeah, and um, he tried to overthrow governments. So when I say, look, I am as hated. I had a recall to prison recently over a Nazi who was threatening to rape my mother. So I get as many threats and attacks against me from Nazis. I'm a race traitor to them. Because I, because I, I built the English Defence League on what I've grown up and what I've seen. I've never seen a completely white Britain. I, I don't, I've never experienced that. So, and I don't want to experience that. I've never been around that. Everyone I've grown up with in, from, from little age in the town of Luton my whole group of friends are a multicultural group of lads. So we started the English Defence League purely off on that. And it was a fight to keep it in that mode because you had all these different groups trying to attach and align themselves and trying to sway it in different directions. But after a few years, we finally got to the point where um, they, they understood where they stood. Ready to pop the question? The jewelers at BlueNile.com have got sparkle down to a science with beautiful lab-grown diamonds worthy of your most brilliant moments. Their lab-grown diamonds are independently graded and guaranteed identical to natural diamonds, and they're ready to ship to your door. Go to BlueNile.com and use promo code LISTEN to get $50 off your purchase of $500 or more. That's code LISTEN at BlueNile.com for $50 off. BlueNile.com, code LISTEN. Quality sleep is essential. That's why the Sleep Number Smart Bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature? Sleep Number Smart Beds let you individualize your comfort, so you sleep better together. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 50% on the Sleep Number Limited Edition Smart Bed for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com slash awards. Only at a Sleep Number store or sleepnumber.com. So when you left, I mean, the documentary When Tommy Met Mo is one of the most electrifying pieces of television I've ever seen. And the man who, in the end, I think, helped convince you to leave the EDL, Imagine Now has been a guest on the show, and he was, he was absolutely beguiling and a, a, a really wonderful speaker. In terms then of your, the journey that you went on, before you met Mo Ansar and Majid Nawaz, were you starting to think about leaving the EDL anyway? Yeah, I was in jail in 
2012 for going to America, um, which I still think is quite harsh, but I got 10 months in prison for entering America. I only spent two days there. If I could have it back, I'd have spent two weeks there. <laughs> I spent two days there. <laughs> and, uh, and I got 10 months in prison, and it was during those 10 months in prison that, um, to be honest, leading that English Defence League, my life rollercoasted. And at that point in 2012, going to jail was the best thing that happened to me because I had become someone that I wouldn't even recognise. I was neglecting my wife, my, my mother. I was, I was a good leader to the English Defence League, but I was probably a shit son and a shit husband. So, it got to, so then when I was in jail, it was the first time I spent 22 weeks on solitary confinement, and it was the first break I'd had. So they put you in solitary for 22 weeks? Solitary, yeah. So in terms of a day-to-day -day experience, what is that in a sitting breakdown in of hours? Sitting in cell. On your own, on entirely, your own. for 24 hours a day? 20, 23 and a half, and they get you out for a half hour and walk, walk around on your own. And they, but they, like did, they did that completely intentionally because they're not allowed to do that. It's against mental health rules, it's against everything to do that. But to get around that, what they did is every 30 days they took me up out of the basement, because solitary's in the basement. I've done nothing wrong to be down there. They said it was my own safety. They moved me from Wandsworth Block to Bedford Block, Bedford Block to Woodhill Block, Woodhill Block to Wandsworth Block, Wandsworth Block to Wayland Block. And obviously I got out. <laughs> Two and a half stone lighter, so it was one good thing. When you're in a cell for 23 and a half hours a day, like, well, how does that affect your sanity? Like, what's going through your head? Um, in the first time, it, I was quite content with being in there at the start because I knew I had to be in there, if I'm honest, because I was a mess. So, so if it, from, a, from, from a, almost a personal, an insight into self-improvement? Yeah, yeah. From self-improvement, I'd led the English Defence League. It, it had exploded. I'd had violent beatings, threats against my family... All this mad sh shit going on, counter-terrorism, panic buttons in the house, police, armed police guards for weeks. All of this exploded and it was just, I just threw myself into it. So that time then, it was sort of a break in a, in a mad sort of way. It was a break to then sit and think about everything. And what I'd spent, as I said, I'd spent years keeping these far-right groups out of the EDL and I spent 22 weeks in there. And when I come out, I watched a video and I saw these groups at our demo when mm. I was in prison. So for me, then I was just like, I'm not like, I'm not being the face for them. You know what I mean? I'll be the face for people who everyone else may see as far right. To me, they're not far right. They're just ordinary people who are concerned and angry. But, um, so I had all those thoughts when I was in there. And, to, and I made my mind up. I'm leaving the EDL. It was just how I left. And when I come out, I was approached by that <coughs> documentary maker. Yeah. For the, and I said to her, so she knew from the start, I said, look, I'm leaving, love. I'm leaving the English Defence League. It's just, uh, I just need to get things in place for how I leave. And then, uh, and then Lee Rigby was killed. So that changed everything. Then I didn't leave. And I, uh, that's when they started filming that documentary. So when you met, some of the most powerful things, and if, if you haven't seen it yet, I, I think it's available on YouTube. It's a phenomenal documentary, particularly the bits where you go into mosques with Imam Ansar and you question him about the segregation in there between male and female, yeah. um, about the attitudes perhaps. And what, what's, it, what's really powerful is a lot of the Muslim elders agree with what you're saying. Yeah, yeah. I find that a lot. And I, 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 you know, like, I get a lot of hostility from young, young as I said, this affected as well, young Muslims. I have some great conversations about my day-to-day -day business in Luton with ordinary Muslims. Who's, all of them want to chat. Can we sit down and have a chat? And, they, mm. and I have a lot of them saying how their face's been hijacked. They feel as angry as me. Mm. They feel this. But um, I found that a lot, even when I've been on BBC Asia Radio, the callers are ringing up and saying, we agree with him. We agree with him. There's, yeah, 
and that documentary, it was the, um, it was the, we, tra we travelled around for 12 months and he introduced me to Muslims and I introduced him to the English Defence League. And even afterwards with what he said, he said, that's not what I was expecting. Because I took him to meet, you take him away from, you take him out to a football on a Saturday afternoon, he's a very different man than he is usually. So you take the English Defence League supporters away from a demonstration with all the tensions, all the hype, all the, the us and them, and you've got ordinary people sitting talking. So, Does that not show you then that ultimately the, the way to combat the things that you have an issue with is not to protest but to sit down and yeah, talk? Yeah, but they don't let you. Now, for example, I, I had an, tomorrow I had, um, I had a, a thing booked in Rotherham about sexual grooming with the leader of the Muslim Youth Association, who's a good kid. He's only about 19 or 20. He's come on the scene since his Robin report because he's come out not in our name and criticising it. So we were due to have a debate and they'd sold 300 tickets to Muslims and my supporters to come in one room in the holiday and the police had gone and shut the venue. And then they shut the venue, so we got another venue. They went and shut that, that venue. When that didn't work, I went into probation Monday morning and they said, if you go to, that, if you go to Sheffield, we're going to recall you to prison. And it's just like, you won't, you won't even let us talk about it. So you're not going to solve these issues without talking about them. And, and look, a lot of people may not like what they're going to hear, but you're going to have to talk about it. And the only way to get... I, I don't think people should be scratching their heads when you've got thousands of angry young men walking through the streets when you won't allow them to talk about it. But you're, you're in a position of leadership and still are in a, in a sense. You know, you're, you're not the leader of the ED anymore, but you, you're a figurehead to a lot of angry white young men. Do you feel any sense of responsibility... To, con to inspire these people to conduct themselves in a more peaceful manner. Yeah, completely, yeah. And what people don't realise, you know when I left the English Defence League, people were saying, like, oh, you've changed your tune. And it's like, no, not all. You've just listening in a different way. Because after Lee Rigby was killed, if you dig up my speech I give at Newcastle, which was five days after he was killed, I started my speech off by saying, if, if, you, were, if you abuse a, a, a Muslim woman on her own, you are a scumbag and a coward. If you target a mosque, you are a coward. You do any of these things, you are a coward, and it's not honourable. It is honourable to oppose terrorism. It is honourable to, op to oppose these things, but there's a way about doing it. I pointed out that there's 600 Muslims in the British Armed Forces. So, but people wouldn't have listened to those things back when I was saying those things. It's just because the whole stereotype and English Defence League and hooligans, it all comes into it. So all the way through the English Defence League, I had done that. And what I found when I left, which was quite worrying, was that whether the police like it or not, I was a moderate figurehead. And what you've then seen is groups coming on board who I've watched a young kid, one young lad as an example, who joined the English Defence League when he was about 17. And now I've seen pictures of him at a splinter organisation called the Northwest Infidels giving Hitler salutes. Now, he was not a Nazi. So what's happened now is because it's left to its own, is you've got these other groups praying around it which are organised and are completely fascist. And, but and weren't you just a sort of gateway there? I mean, I have to say, the footage that I've seen of EDL rallies was petrifying. Yeah, it's it was a very deeply violent. Very different footage to, to be in there. What the media will do is... I know, but these are like BBC. Like, I, I know yeah. and I understand... What I mean is, out of two, out of two or three hours of footage, they yeah. could show you footage where someone else who's been at that demonstration wouldn't even thought anything happened. I know, but if something does happen, it deserves to be shown. Yeah, of course. But, for example, when Lee Rigby was killed, a lot of, the, a lot of this, from our point of view, is set up as well. Lee Rigby's killed. We're, we're marching on Downing Street. We've got 3,000 people. There's a whole load of Sikhs who are doing a protest against uh, someone who's on death row in India. Now, the night before, I spoke to the organiser of that, because we have a very good relationship with the Sikhs. And we're saying, on the day, I, I guarantee you on the day, our supporters, there will be no issues with our supporters. So what the police did is, as we've turned up, they put our demonstration here, they put the Sikhs there, 
and then they put all the UAF and Muslims behind the Sikhs. So then all, the, all that happened, which they let happen, is bottles come rolling in to the, all the English Defence League supporters, which, from their point of view, they don't want us to be orderly or fashion. They want you to be ripping down fences and smashing things up. Who, who's they? Who wants that? The authorities, the police, the system. So the, the police want the English Defence League to be violent? Yeah. For what purpose? Because it can discredit completely any, any message you've got. And they, they were fearful of the message. And I, to me, I, I finished my licence in July. And when I'm off licence, I will tell people about secretive groups within the police, some mad things that you would not... We, we think we have freedom of speech and a democracy. You, we don't. And I can tell you that by black, I've been blackmailed. Things that you would not believe. By figs of authority? Yeah. Things that you would not believe. Names that we would know? No, because secretive units within the... You know, put it this way, you know when Jihadi John says he about how blackmailed he was and how he felt pushed... I get it, you know what I mean? I get it, and I was told if I, if I spoke about... If you watch my Oxford University speech, I was going to lay all on, these, on what's been going on, on that side of it, with... And I was told four days before you'll, be, you'll spend the next nine months in jail if you do that. So there, there is no freedom of speech. You know what I mean? We only think we've got freedom of speech. I've had my wife arrested. They used my wife as a pawn against me to go guilty on my case. All sorts of mad things. Were you guilty? No. I have been guilty in my life of doing so many wrong things and so many times I should have landed myself in prison as a young lad. But this thing that I went jail for was... Um, I owned... By the time I was 25, I owned seven properties. I had two successful businesses. Now, what they arrested me on at that time... So English Defence has been going six months. They come in and arrest me. Yeah? They put me on a financial restraining order, which I'm still on now, which froze all my assets, froze my businesses, froze my bank accounts. You're not allowed to work. Yeah? I'm still on that now, five and a half years later. Yeah? So they put me on that, and then they investigated, and they charged me with tax evasion. They put me on a court trial saying I owed £137,000 to the tax man from my businesses. Um, they also arrested me on mortgage frauds. But what they did is none of my mortgages. They arrested my brother-in-law... They arrested my cousin, they arrested my other cousin, they arrested all people around my family. When I looked at their investigation, they actually in, in, investigated my mum and dad's bank accounts to find anything. Now, my brother-in-law, what he'd done, he's bought a property, you know, self do you remember self-certification mortgages? The whole country did it, the whole country was encouraged to do it. So he put on his form that he earned 24 grand, where really he only earned 12. Yeah? Bought the property, sold the property six months later, paid the mortgage company back. This was in 2008, yeah? That's what they nicked us on. I've gone to court. I've got found not guilty on tax evasion. As I'm sitting there, they've said in court, give a date for Jenna Lennon, because they nicked her when she was pregnant. It's my wife. Give a date for Jenna Lennon. So they set a date for my wife to stand trial. So I'm sitting there. You could go home and search, try and search for a picture of my wife. You won't find one. Yeah? All my kids. So I live two very separate lives, and I managed to keep my family completely out of the spotlight. Well, through things like super injunctions? Or? Yeah, no, through just living a separate life. I don't go anywhere with them that I would be photographed or anything like that. Anyone can get... Do you still live with them? I still live with them, yeah, but we, we go separately everywhere. So, and the police are aware of my whole fear is my, my wife's security. If I go walking through Luton, I will get in bother. You, know, you can watch videos. There's video and video after YouTube of me getting punched out, me getting attacked. I get spat out, all different things. If my wife goes walking through Luton with the kids, she doesn't know I'm bats an eyelid. No one knows who she is. So then they set a date for her to stand trial for tax, and she's not going to get convicted. She go, they know what that's doing. She's gone home crying for the whole weekend. Yeah? Then they come round at three o'clock in the morning. They give us a counter-terrorism threat from Al-Shabaab. This was two weeks after the Kenyan shopping mall massacre, where they've massacred all the people in the shopping centre. 
They said, Al-Shabaab have named you on um, a Somalian terrorist video to be killed at all costs. Sat my wife down, sat us all down, so then you can imagine, you think you've been in the doghouse, bruv. I created the doghouse, yeah? So, sh so she is just... I've got a bit of news. She is distraught, and I, and, I'm and I know in the back of my head, I know what's going on, yeah? I know yeah. when I, I'm... I'm supposed to be starting a trial on the Monday for, the, uh, for this mortgage forward charge, and I know when I get in there, I'm, they're going to offer me a deal. And I said, Jenna, just relax, because all this means is I'm going to jail. That's all it means. And when I got into court, they said, plead guilty to this, this and this. None of them are my mortgages. Yeah? My brother-in-law's mortgage, my cousin's two mortgages. Plead guilty to these and, um, and we drop everyone else. Yeah? And we drop your wife, we drop everything. And I said, how long do I get in jail for that? It's three to five years. So I've then had to go ring my wife and say, I'm going to get three to five years here. It's either that or your whole life changed the way mine changed. Yeah. And um, so she's gone mad saying, don't you dare do it. Don't do it. I've walked back in and said, I'm not taking your deal. Take me to court. We're going for trial. They swore the jury in. I had three Muslims on my jury. They swore the jury in. And just before the jury, it was about to start, they pulled me back outside and said, plead guilty to them too. So I said, and I said how long are we get for that? My brief said, you're going to get two years. Tops two years. Which you serve half, half again. So I had to weigh it up. I rang my wife and said, I'm going guilty. And I'm, and I'm going to jail. And I, and I went guilty and I went to jail. And what they then did... Which I thought that's the end of it. I, they, they released my assets and free all my houses and everything like that, my businesses. What they then did is I've come out of jail, and um, this is some of the things I can't talk about, like what happened when I was in jail with these lot. But I've come out and I've gone to court, and uh, I've been hit with a £125,000 fee I've got to pay. Now, in the crime, it wasn't my mortgage. No one lost any money. Yeah? My brother-in-law bought a house for 90 grand. He sold it for 120. So there is a 30,000 pound profit. Yeah? Yeah. Mortgage company got paid back. They've hit me for the, the full 120 grand. They've hit him for nothing. So I've then been given until July to pay them 120,000 pound. They've forced a sale on my house. This is for a crime that they openly said in court there was no financial gain to me. I had no financial gain in this crime. Oh, this all sounds like something from some sort of bizarre spy well, thriller. This, like it's this is what they're doing. But if it wasn't me... Because I'm a quite a controversial figure. When I, was in, when I was on 22 weeks on solitary confinement, my family were desperate trying to get a human rights lawyer to act for me. Yeah? Yeah. They couldn't find one. So then they looked up Jamie Bolger's killer, human rights lawyer. Yeah? Thought, all right, he's got, he's got to represent him. Rang him up, said, look, this is what's gone on. He's been in solitary confinement for 12 weeks. He's like, oh, they can't do that, they can't do that. It's got to the end. He said, yeah, he's leader of the English Defence League. Can't represent him. So it's like... You it, couldn't find a single lawyer a single human rights lawyer that would represent me. So obviously my family are on the outside trying to do everything. So that shows you... But I thought lawyers would do anything for money. No, because they get, <laughs> they get their money from, especially human rights lawyers, from representing Muslims. And, and, I, and, and the brand of who I am it has become that toxic that someone would rather represent Jamie Bolger's killer than represent me. Because I dare to talk about Islam. In terms then of now what you do with your life and how you choose to campaign against radical Islam, Islamism, however you would word it. Yeah. What do you see your future as? Um, I don't really know. It changes all the time. At that time when I was in jail, I saw myself as just coming out and going back to be a father of three. And that's all my wife wants me to do is shut up. Just shut up. <laughs> Not just about Islam. Just shut up. Yeah. <laughs> shut up and live a normal life. But it's, um, as you said, you said... It's sort of like built a voice for so many people that feel it's their voice. I think there's, I think we face big problems in this country, and I just think, and I think when these problems grow, there has to be some 
reasonable voices on either side. Mm. Yeah? But in order to be able to do things in a more democratic way, they have to let you. Now, if they're not going to let you, this is what I'm finding now. It's like, look, you won't even let us hire halls when we've got Muslims that are willing to talk to us. The police are going in and shutting them down. If you're not going to let people speak about these issues, you leave them no choice but to be on the street. But what about working with an organisation like Quillian? What about doing things in a different way? Writing a book, you know, giving... And I know you give some speeches, but really becoming a moderate voice and becoming almost, you know, a voice that would be acceptable, frankly, to mainstream middle Britain. Yeah, it's... Um, Without losing your integrity and representing working class people. To a lot of them, it's like, it's like, for example, I had a meeting with a book publisher, and unless I told the story they wanted me to tell, I, I, I want to tell the truth. The truth people may not want to hear, but it's still the truth has to be told. So I am in the process of writing my own book so I can detail everything. Mainly, the biggest thing that I didn't realise with all of this was um, I thought it'd be fundamentalist Muslims that would stop you or end up giving you the most pressure. It's not. It's the state. That's what's really shocked me. It's like you're the enemy of the state for trying to stand up for freedom, democracy, that's the way I see it, and it's the state is just boom. But they perceive you, don't they, as a violent force? They perceive you as... Um, justifiably, you know, arguably justifiably, given... Yeah, I've never, I've never been convicted for anything from violence to do with um, Muslims ever in my life. I've never been convicted for anything racial. What they see us as is... Um, and that, they fear the reaction all the time. When we were trying to march into Tower Hamlets, they took us, we took them to the High Court because they wouldn't let us go into Tower Hamlets. And they said openly in the High Court, we, we, look, we can control the deal. What we can't control is the 10 or 15,000 they're going to be waiting for. Mm. So for me then, it's like, look, if we're in 2014 and you can't control the streets of our, our capital over people wanting to protest over... And remember, what we wanted to protest over was Lufthansa Rahman, who's mm. now been given the boot and found guilty. So again, we were proven right. It's like all, all these things that we've brought up over the years. It's like I've sat in jail in 2013 and just thought, ah, oh, told you, told you, ISIS, told you. Bang. It's like, and you've been calling us lunatics. Even my mamas. <laughs> so what did she say to you? Did she say, oh, well, I was going to say up. Tommy. Tommy, Andrew, <laughs> Stephen, Paul. Well, she calls you. She, um, Usually when my mum lists a load of names, it's because she's forgotten mine. With yours, she's going through all the ones you've had. Yeah. <laughs> uh, Tommy, Andrew, Paul, Stephen. Uh, what? what um, did she say, please stop. Stop all this nonsense. Yeah, of course, yeah. I'm her son and I. So she got at the same time. It's like she got called in and threatened with her job over it. She was working in a school. So it's like everything I just think is wrong. It's got nothing to do with her. I mean, nothing at all to do with her. I've had issues over the years with her address and people putting her address online. It's like, look, if I get a smack in the face, some people say I warrant a smack in the face. I'm willing to take a smack in the face, yeah, any time. Because, but I'm not willing for my family to be put through things that they just simply don't deserve to be put through. But isn't there, again, an irony in, that, in the manner in which the English Defence League behaved? They terrorised a lot of people and didn't care about the, the fears of families who were shopping in town centres, of people that were yeah. getting attacked and physically the truth, assaulted. The truth, the truth is, the English Defence League raped no-one. You've got tens of thousands of kids that have been raped. The English Defence League have blown nothing up. They have murdered and killed no-one. That's the truth. The truth is, you might have had people singing offensive songs, a few bottles thrown in town centres. When I got to five years after leading the English Defence League and I stepped out, I thought, we've been lucky here. Yeah? We've been lucky that no one's been killed. Because the minute someone is killed in this environment, you will have a sectarian conflict. 
And I don't really want to be the, the man who, who orchestrated or, tri or triggered that. But people do need to understand the undercurrent angers, the, the problems that are there. The longer we, they're not addressed and the longer that you don't allow a mainstream voice for it um, to, or to address it, then uh, you're going to create monsters. But do you realise that you could be that mainstream voice? Because that documentary, I just thought, filled me with hope. Because until then, I thought you were someone who was um, enjoying the violence and like almost seemed emboldened and enriched by this sort of street thuggery and that you were enjoying corralling these people and, and really thought quite ill of you. And then I saw the documentary and that opinion didn't entirely change, but started to change. I thought, actually, there's more, there's clearly more to you and you're clearly more clever than people would have the rest of us believe and you, you clearly got clear views and your, um, just the specific messaging of it was I just think quite people, impressive. People but you, but you could be a figure of hope now. You've got a massive opportunity to say, almost lay down your arms. You know, the way to solve these things is through talking, it's not through violent street protests. It is, but as I said, they have to let you. If they don't let you. But they'll let you talk. They won't let, any venue, I guarantee you, if I go and book a venue, they will cancel it. But this has been allowed to go ahead. Because it's me and you, because I'm coming here as a guest to talk at your thing. Still, police have contacted you, right? I, I had Scotland Yard contact me again, warning me about my licence. People are about to wear wristbands. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, look, crazy, eh? It's kicked off. But it's, um, the other... Look, I say with, with Muslims, and even moderate Muslims that I've met, I may say things you don't like, yeah? You may do things I don't like. But we still should be able to meet in the middle. Yeah, it doesn't seem picking your nose and inciting racial hatred, does yeah. it? No, but I'm just very honest about... It was that way around, wasn't it? If, there, <laughs> if there's problems within their ideology, I think we should talk about them. Mm. I, th I think all the, we've got all these multiculturalists who want to encourage everyone to stay in their own communities and actually stay, stay segregated, and they've encouraged this multiculturalism without digging under to find out, well, what is it that makes us different? What, where are we morally different? Where are we culturally different? Where is this going? Equally, where are we the same? Well, where are we the same? Yeah, yeah. yeah. And, and, and it's that that um, I think we need a very frank, open and honest debate on, on the spread of Islamist, Islamist ideology across Britain. But fundamentally, these people in Britain, there's more that unites us, isn't there? There is, but not when, when you see certain statistics or polls, or when Charlie Hebdo was killed, when his offices were attacked, I saw 30,000 Muslims marching in Birmingham in support, not for him or for free speech. It's like, if you're in Britain, you have to accept free speech. You have to stand up for liberal democracy. That's what you're here for. Leave Sharia law at the door. If you want Sharia law, <coughs> go join ISIS. <coughs> We've seen how wonderful it is. But you, <coughs> there is an irony, isn't there, in sort of championing liberal democracy whilst leading a, or certainly having led a group that was actually quite authoritarian. Um, no, it, it's, that, that's an outside image again. If you met within the, the English Defence League had gay divisions, it had Jewish divisions, it had Sikh and Hindu divisions, and it was still called this far-right group, and every time they talk about it... But gay people can be racist. They obviously could, yeah. <laughs> uh, again, again, with the racist thing, it's, um, it's, we've never mentioned a race. We've never spoke about races. We've just spoke about an ideology. An ideology that every ideology deserves to be able to be picked to pieces and criticised. Everyone. Yeah, yeah. We should be free to do that without fear of being murdered. And the truth is, you probably will get murdered. At some point, someone will make an attempt on my life. That's the reality, which I've accepted a long time ago. So I, 
carry that now because I, I that is a that is a reality. Do you live in fear of it? Not anymore, no. At, no. at first, though. Yeah, at first, as I said, that's why I think during I probably thought I felt I dealt with it quite well, but I actually just end up going off my head, and, and that's in 2012. And I, I wasn't a drinker before the English Defence League. I didn't drink, or and I found myself drinking and just going nuts on benders and hanging around with people who aren't even my friends and just changed completely. But that I'd say was partly to do with thinking like I'm walking with a terminal illness, mm. because it's like you either. We made a decision very on, me, me and my cousin Kevin, Carol. It's like, once we go into this, there's no real backing down. So we have to just go two feet into it, if we're going to do it. Which is what we did. And, um, and then now it's, uh, I accept it now. So, I accept it. You know, when it, you, if you've had the police sit you down six times from counterterrorism, and give you an Osman warning saying, some, we know someone's going to kill you. you know what I mean... It's all like after the fifth one. It's like, see you later, lads. <laughs> but do you, like when you leave the theatre tonight, will you be looking over your shoulder? I do when I'm, I do when I'm with my family. But other than that, it's like I start wearing a bulletproof vest and things like that. And I just thought, you know what? If you, if they're going to kill you. They're going to kill you. It's like with my door. It's like they, the police, when they come round, they give me this. Whilst having me on a restraining order and having all my bank accounts, they give me this piece of paper of all the things I can do and all the things I can't do. Like, I can't get a weapon. I can't do this. You, we advise you to buy a double lock for your door. That's right. If ISIS come round my house, <laughs> a double lock doesn't matter. He's out, Dave. <laughs> it does not matter. So, uh, it's, um, I don't know. Obviously, my wife, I've got three kids, and I? So, it's a difficult situation. But have you definitely left all the EDL stuff behind? I've left the EDL completely. A lot of people still don't think of that. I have had that today with someone on Twitter, so I'm still leading the EDL. But the, the other it my children would not know what the EDL is. You said to my kids, what's the EDL? They don't know. They don't know I've been to prison. They think I worked away. Mm. So I've managed to shield, and they're at a sort of age now where I've shielded all of that from them. They have no idea. The kids don't talk at school or anything like that? They're, only, uh, they're only four... Five and seven. Okay, but once they get to... Soon, that's coming. The internet. Yeah, soon it's coming. And soon I'll have to explain a lot of things. And in fact, that's how with my book run, right? And that's the first chapter is I start by saying, very soon I'm going to have to sit my door down. Because mm. she's at that age, and I'm going to have to explain it all to her. Because just before we open it out to the audience, someone who certainly thought you were still in charge of the uh, EDL was the Conservative candidate in Dudley, Afzal Amin, yeah. who had this meeting with you to... Now, is, is the version of events that we've been led to believe true? He wanted you to coordinate, effectively, a fake EDL rally so that he could then claim that he'd called the whole thing off and brought an end to this mega-mosque. Conservative party, eh? <laughs> <laughs> the, the, do you know the scary thing is with that? Is that he, on paper, ticks every box. 11 years in the British Army, Muslim captain. He'd already been asked by the Conservative Party which seat he wanted on Cabinet. What, what we found out the next week in the... I don't know if you saw the follow-up story, was a leaflet that he'd wrote. Did you read it? No. Oh, mate. He'd wrote a leaflet in the year 2000, so a year before he joined the armed forces, and it said that we must fight jihad against the kafar. It was, when you read it, it's like Anjem Chowdhury wrote it. So it was like, you're, 11, you're a plant, mate. When I read it, I thought, you're a complete plant in the government. So he was an ex-Islamist? He was a complete radical. When you read this leaflet... He was talking about building inner, thi- inner villages of mu- the Mujahideen in Britain and coming out and fighting the Kafar. 
But well, yeah, so he'd been a Lib Dem before he was at all. He'd been in the Green Party. <laughs> the crier didn't realise that he'd, that he'd had that radical Great. past. And then, and then, so basically, when I'm sitting with him, and he's, got the, he's brought these money men with him who are, in my view, Pakistani gangsters, yeah? And they're talk, they are, they're, all they're talking about is gangsters in Luton, and they've come down from Birmingham. And um, there's lots of things they didn't, like, from the footage, that the story's never run, yeah? And I'm saying to these two lads, I said, like, you're not conservative, so why are you funding him to get in? And he says, oh, well, basically, when the police were harassing me years ago, yeah, he said, if Afsal would have been in, I'd have rang Afsal and said, ring the chief of police, and it would have been sorted. I thought, you corrupt bastards. So that's exactly what's going on, yeah? And then, they, and then he said that they've got another Muslim woman in the Labour Party who they funded to get in, and we researched it ourselves. We found donations of 30 grand going to her. But the papers had all that information. But they only run the Afsal Min story, really. And the, the, they're sitting there saying, you're looking at the future Prime Minister. I'm sitting there thinking, no, no I ain't, mate, because... Uh, not when this gets exposed, because... <laughs> <laughs> you're a wrong one, mate. And, it, and he rang me up. And uh, to be honest, I felt pretty dirty doing it. Um, so you leaked the story? Yeah. Or gave the story? I felt like... Uh, I knew his world's going to crumble. Mm. You know what I mean? I didn't take any pleasure out of that, but... He couldn't be on our cabinet. He just couldn't be. Not with the men he's sitting with, what he's talking about, all the corruption, and just... He's like saying, yeah, and when he's Prime Minister, you'll be able to ring him up, and this, he's telling the EDL lad, I thought, yeah, fuck off, mate. You're going to get in, throw your phone, you're never going to talk to us again. Yeah, yeah. You're just, you, again, it's like you're using the working class. But it was a very odd organisation to go to, wasn't it? You know, for him to think, right, I need to, I need to sell myself as a, as a healer in this community. <laughs> well, what it was, it, he's, I met him at Quilliam, and, um, and I'd kept in contact with him, and he'd come down to see me. Um, and everything was fine at first. Everything was fine. And he came down to see me because the EDL were doing a demo in his constituency. <coughs> and it was the first, and he asked me to facilitate a meeting with the leadership of the EDL, which I did. And it's the first time I spoke to the EDL since leaving. So I took him up there. This was again, <coughs> I took him up there and I'd sat there for 20 minutes and my wife rang and she was crying her eyes out that said there's two cars outside the house and one car's got out of his hood up and gone to the other car and put something through the window. So I'm screaming at her, press the button, because we've got panic button. I said, press the panic button, press the panic button. I've then left, shot home. I've left them in their meeting. That was, it turned out that someone had come down from up north to buy a car and he was getting the money out of the envelope, putting <laughs> <laughs> it through the window. But <coughs> she was, nevertheless, she wanted to know that. And um, so I facilitated that original meeting, which all seemed kosher and all seemed good. He, and then he went to the next EDL demo with the English Defence League. So, and he said to me afterwards, I was treated very, very well. I said, you would be. It's a misconception. It's a misconception. Any Muslim could go, invited to the English Defence League demonstration. I saw a picture of a woman wearing a, a hijab um, at the demonstration in Birmingham. And I know for a fact, contrary to how most people would think, if one man would have said anything untowards that woman, another man would have backhanded him the minute they did. So it's like a... Um, and that's the misconception that many people just think, are oh, the English Defence League all animals, hooligans? It's not that way at all. It's not. It's honestly not. The majority... But there are, a, there are some proper scumbags in there. But that's turning up on the street. You can't, you can't always legislate for who's going to turn up. <coughs> Sorry. Sorry. Uh, well, let's open it up to the audience then. So we'll have the house lights up. Uh, we've got a roving mic somewhere. So if you'd like to put your hand up, uh, indicate clearly. And uh, we'll get around as many as we can. If we can ask for concise questions and concise answers, it'd be nice if we could fit as many in as possible. Oh, so. Our first question. Hands up. Yes, the lady in the middle, please. 
And just let us know your name as well, please. Um, yeah, I'm Ruth. Um, you say that there's never any opportunity to talk about these kind of issues, but actually I think they come up quite often on stuff like Question Time. Um, and the other, it would be really, really easy to have a YouTube channel or get these kind of messages out on social media or on the internet. Is that a way that you could spread your message if you don't already? Yeah, when, when I say... When I say um, when I say five year, five six years ago when we started, there was no way. So we contacted our council, and the only place that we found a voice was on the street. And every time we had a demonstration, the media done our job for us. Every issue we wanted to raise, they sort of raised for us. And um, and when you say about question time, I, I've never once watched a question time and thought he speaks for me. And I think most people who would have joined the English Defence League feel like that. Every time we watch any of those debate shows, it's like I just I just explained to yourself there. Everyone in this room is voting. Well, there's 30 or 40% of people in Britain that are not going to vote. And they're the people that would be representative of the English Defence League. They're not involved in politics. They don't care for politics. They feel betrayed by politics. And um, it's those people that we are trying to create a voice for. And, and even when you say on question time and, and programmes like that, I don't think they'd, well, they've, they've, I've never been on there. You know what I mean? But you're right about YouTube and... We use Twitter now and going forward when I get off licence in July, I do ha we do have plans to try and do things the right way. And we're going to say, we're going to have a press conference when we, we launch something and say, let us do it the right way. Yeah. Let us travel this country, let us, all, let, us, let us go to workmen's clubs, let us go to halls, let us go to all these different places and bring a debate. But you could do it on YouTube already, couldn't you? That's a really good point. You could just put, a, you know, you know, Tommy... No, 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 but that's... Yeah, not. Yeah. That's good. No, understand that, but equally, but equally, it's not just about talking to your core support. It's also about taking that, if it is a moderate message, taking it out and, and changing minds in the mainstream. So it's not just about talking to your own supporters. I think you could do a job of maybe getting those messages out in a mainstream way and, and helping convince other people. You've got online. Islamic groups like MEND now who they reckon are going to swing so many elections, yeah? And every group, political party wants to talk to them. So in the next five years' time, we want to be representative of those groups. So we want to have travelled Britain and we want to have built relationships and groups who are politically minded. Because working class kids, people out are not politically minded. And we're just pretty much being laughed at. Oh, Luton Borough Council told us in a meeting, she, she leant across and just said, there's not enough for you. That's the head of the council. There's not enough for you. We don't matter. Because they will get 30,000 votes from that Muslim community. And that nothing that we're saying really matters politically. So we want to build up by the next general election in five years that in towns and cities across this country, we, are, we have a sway in those working class communities. But in a, would it be different in towns, the EDL? It will be very, very different. It, well, I, I know where I can sit... Because uh, I worry a bit now. I just think, are no, you going to go on a tour around no, Workmen's Club? It's all going to kick no, off. No, I, I, I can sit, having led the EDL, and look back at all the areas of our ways. And I couldn't do that at the time of leading it. And when I was leading the English Defence I'm surrounded by yes people, who everyone told me everything I said was great, and everything I was doing was right. Whereas in reality, there was many things I weren't. So um, I've learned a lot. And I, I said, I feel like I've done my apprenticeship. <laughs> OK. Uh, yes, gentlemen over here. Um, is English Defence League probably the wrong name to go forward? Yeah, yeah it's not, yeah, completely. The A branding expert in the corner yeah, there? Yeah, yeah. No, that's not, no, what about Starburst? In terms of <laughs> <laughs> you're, you're right, because the English Defence League means something different to every person. If you stop 10 English Defence League supporters and say, why are you here? He'll say a different reason to him. He'll say a different reason to him. They've all got these different reasons. And that comes from the name. Um, we didn't plan that. But at the same time, it's what allowed the organisation to grow so well with the branding. But, yeah, a new name going forward has to be completely 
you understand what this group's doing. But maybe sound less confrontational. Yeah, completely. Yeah. Less, less aggressive. Uh, yes, go at the back. Uh, yeah, hi. Um, I'm a bit confused because tonight you've been talking about we. All night it's been we, the EDL, we. Yeah, us. Yeah. No, no, just let me finish. And, and then you said moving forward, we, we will be. So is we still the EDL or is it something different? I feel um, the English Defence League was a huge part of my life, um, a massive part of my life. And uh, I still feel very attached to a lot of the people that I met in that. And um, moving forward, I, you I did leave. I did leave. And it was the most difficult decision I ever had to make to leave. But I left for the cause not for the group. So moving forward, when I say we, I talk on behalf of the people I speak for. The working class people who supported me throughout the EDL. Okay. Any more questions on the ground floor? Over there, um, lovely, thank you. Earlier you were speaking about how uh, you felt like, um, like extremist Muslim was an issue in your area. Um, or, yeah, like that. And then like, you talked about how uh, these are groups that could possibly be considered extremists, but you didn't really talk about how that could be resolved. Then later, you talked about how you fell victimised by the police and stuff, possibly as part of a group which could also be considered extremist. How would you think it would be better to deal with those extremists, opposed to possibly your extremist views? As in, how, how should yes. we... Sorry, I didn't expect No, I didn't. <laughs> Say again? So you were talking about um, how, like... In your area. <laughs> Just, what's the question? <laughs> I've really bought this up. <laughs> no, it's fine, it's fine. It's fine, don't be nervous. Okay, so, sorry, you were talking about how uh, there's groups of extremists in your area, but yep. you didn't really explain how you thought that could be resolved, okay. that extremism. Um, you possibly represent an extremist group, and you were also then talking about how uh, you've been approached by police and had lots of hassle from the police, and they won't let you talk, and they won't let you... So that's possibly how currently the police are dealing with what they view as extremism. Yeah, I, I, not, I get what you're saying. No, I get what you're saying. Um, how could the police deal with all these radical Muslim groups? They could deal with them by... They could, you know it sounds stupid to give ASBOs. In the early days, we asked for ASBOs. If you've got three or four troublesome kids in our estate, you give them ASBOs and you stop them from hanging around together and you stop them from going to shops together and hanging around that area. Well, you just do that to them. And then you, you won't for, have them... Well, but for what? For, for, for the protests or for... For, for setting fire to poppies, for attacking the, the faith march, for interrupting the Holocaust memorial, for burning, for burning American flags on September 11th, for doing everything that they can in order to get our back up and <coughs> cause disruption. And all of these groups cut their, cut their funding. A lot of them are still get... Our Salafist mosque in our town still gets local 77 grand they got last year from the Labour government. It's like, what are you doing? You're funding our own demands. It was the Tory government last year, though, wasn't it? No, Labour in Luton. It doesn't matter oh, what the Tory... Oh, local government. I said, this, I said with um, all these things I put to Theresa May, um, I put to her about the school in Luton. Face-to-face? Face-to-face, yeah. And how did... What did she do? She shit herself. <laughs> I set, I set a meeting up in under a different name again, one of my many. Yeah? <laughs> and, uh, yeah, no. and I went Christ. as one of her constituents. Yeah. And I walked straight through and sat down in front of her. And I got a laptop out and I showed her for 20 minutes. This is what's going on in my town. I said, so you can say what you want. She said, my government have got a very tough, tough stance on Islamic extremism. I said, bullshit. Abogasada, though? Yeah, still bullshit. Because all of them, say like... My local face of Luton's Muslim community is a Salafist radical 
lunatic who on the radio, when I left EDL, I walked in and I, I said to him, because I know what, put, what to push him on what points, but no one else pushes him. He admitted on the radio, in his ideal, his ideal Britain, we would execute homosexuals. This man is part of Luton in Harmony programme. He is, he, <laughs> he, he, he is, he, he is, and he, he's sitting there calling me an extremist. I said, you, you get me, I'm an extremist because I think we should cut, ban face coverings, but you're a moderate and you think we should kill people, mate. And, and this is the problem. So the government can make whatever moves they want. So long as we are putting Islamist people in positions of power, in councils, in these multi-faith multi organisations, then we're empowering them. We have created, every time anything happens in Luton, the local council, in fact, look, just, just two weeks ago, there's a, there's a blog on the Telegraph now where Luton police went and they had their picture taken with a lot of the Muslim leaders. They're standing there saying, stronger together, with a bloke who on the radio said he wants to kill all the homosexuals. And for me, it's just like everything you're doing is just backward and wrong. But isn't there a danger, like you say, that they, they're provoking you, they want to get your backs up, and that's exactly what they did. And in an odd way, aren't you playing into their hands and helping radicalise more young Muslims than if you hadn't have behaved the way you had? If the English Defence League hadn't been here, would 2,000 British Muslims still have left to fought a jihad for ISIS? Yes. Did 7-7 happen before the EDL? Yes. I, so I get people saying, look, you've, you've probably helped in certain ways, but... This ideology has been going on for 1,400 years. This whole jihad and this extremism problem, is, it's been here for 1,400 years. I, I don't think they need much help. They're pretty good here. Do you think Britain's role in the world has made us more vulnerable, wars like Iraq and Afghanistan? Yeah, I'm, I'm, I'm completely opposed to those wars. And I know, are you a Blairite? Yeah. He's a war criminal. <laughs> Who's the extremist now? Yeah, you. <laughs> I, think, I think he should be done. I think he should be charged. I think so many of these... If you look at what we wanted to do when this whole, um, when this whole original Syria Assad thing was happening. Yeah, yeah. And I, in fact, this was when we were demonstrating in Tower Hamlets. And I, was, and I remember saying it in my speech, saying, you now want us to fund and support the men we've been fighting in, mm. fighting against. And that has now what, what developed into the opposition, which has now become ISIS. And but every time they seem to get it wrong, we've taken out Gaddafi, or well done. Now you've got another failed state, you morons. To, even when it comes down to Saddam Hussein, it's like, look, you just, you're destroying every country. And even now, like, you want to go in and bomb Assad, what, because Saudi Arabia want you to? That's the reality. Because the, the Christians are safer under Assad. And that's what I look at, how Christian, how, what's happening to the other minorities in these countries. And right now, they're more persecuted than they've ever been. And but, that is a, that a lot of that comes down to the hand that our government have had to play in it. But isn't the issue not in removing these people, but then what follows afterwards? I mean, no well, yeah, one would so deny you, that Assad and Hussein and... But who's, who are you gonna, what are you going to place them with? It's not going to be a democracy, is it? Because they don't want a democracy. Well, a lot of people do want a democracy. In where? Well, in Iraq. In Afghanistan. In Afghanistan, the turnout was higher than it was in our 2005 general election. There's people, and in Iraq as well, crying out for democracy. Democracy isn't a Western value. <laughs> Well, OK, let's go on to other questions. <laughs> uh, anyone else over there? Yes, there's a gentleman with his hand. Hold on, wait for the microphone. Oh, sorry, we should, Sophie had gone up to the, uh, gone to the balcony and then it's... Really sorry about that, Sophie. Here we are. You've talked a lot about the problems that you perceive and the issues also that you had with the EDL and the problems associated with your former activities as head of the EDL. But what do you think the solution is? How would you describe or summarise the best approach going forward to tackle and resolve the issues that you've described? I think we need to be very tough and very straight talking. And I think that all funding from Saudi Arabia and Qatar and countries like that, which are diabolical regimes and diabolical countries, needs to be ended. We should not have 
them dictating what form of Islam has been propagated in Britain. I think that British Muslims have to be in control of their mosques. 95% of imams in this country can't even speak English. So we haven't got a British Islam, we've got a tribalistic form of Islam with people flying in and out of the country to talk about these things. I think all mosques should be regulated and moderated. I think there's so many things that we need to do. I think every Sharia law corporate should be closed down. I think that we should be encouraging complete integration and encouraging every single colour and faith child to feel English and celebrate being English. I don't think St George's Day should be for white English people. I think that we should be encouraging, in a similar way to America have succeeded, in the fact that even if you get a Muslim in America and you ask him what he is, he'll tell you he's American. You yeah, but America has its own problems, doesn't it? Do you, when you say to be English... Um, I think we need do to. Mean I think, British, I think, do you mean to feel at home here? I think as, as we've got a growing demographic and we've, we see that, which we have, we've got on average Muslims having 5.6 children, we're having 1.3. As generations go on, it's going to get the gap's going to get bigger and bigger. We can't have a huge part of this country who do not feel at all British or English, and they don't. They but a lot of Muslims do. But not around where I've grown up, mate. Where, if you, you stop the Pakistani lads and say, well, "Why are you?" They'll say they're Pakistani. You know what I mean? So they're not even, this is fourth and fifth generation. So we need to encourage all of them. And I do that through, I saw a, I saw it, and the, the problem, the person you need to be saying this is a Muslim, or a Hindu, or a Sikh, or someone that's not white. Because I read a, a counsellor up in um, Leeds said something like, something like he wants every school to sing the national anthem, all the kids to sing the national anthem, bring back pride. But I think that's what we need to be doing, is encouraging a lot of our problems would be so is solved. That just, is, that, is that your way of maybe clumsily talking about citizenship and I think a sort of shared view of a multicultural Britain that you'd be proud of? Or I you think we've lost pride in... Old English values in a regressive sense. I think we've lost pride in our communities. Completely lost pride. And I think if you solve that pride issue, then you'd solve a lot of the issues. And I think that But is that necessarily through national identity? Yeah, I think we all have to sign, have to sign that brings us together. And national identity should be that. We're all in this country. We should all love this country. We should all be part of it. So we should be encouraging everyone to be part of it. It's like when I said... But what we love about it is its tolerance and its openness, isn't it? Yeah, you can't have tolerance to intolerance. There has to come a time when we say enough's enough. We should not be tolerant, tolerating this intolerance, which we're seeing regularly across this country, in halls, in seminars, in every single university in our country has radical Islamist preachers, homophobic, anti-Semitic. Universities used to be a place where your kids go and you worry about them taking drugs or getting too pissed. Now you're worrying about them coming out of bomber. It's gone insane. It's gone insane. And pissed. And pissed. And <laughs> a, a drunk... Uh, yeah, a drunk bomber. But, um, it's, and it's like... For me, it's madness. You've, you've seen the Trojan horse school thing. Mm. Every institution... If you could see what's going on in prisons, you would shit yourself. You would shit yourself. <laughs> if you saw... I'd shit myself when I want to think about prison you, anyway. I, I know... I, I, I think I'm down with a lot of the problems in the country. I went into that Woodhill prison. It's like an ISIS training camp. And it's like, we are not doing anything to stop this. The, mm. the wings are controlled by Islamist gangs who are complete radicals, who are then preying on the young, weak non-Muslims who are being converted and forcefully converted, mm. and nothing's being done. So there's so many things that we could be doing, but we're not, because no one's brave enough. It's like, every time they want to say something, you saw what the letter went out, didn't it? When there was a la who wrote that letter to all the mosques asking them to... Eric Pickles. Yeah, look at the reaction. Look at the reaction from a letter. Yeah. <laughs> well, God help us when we actually start trying to deal with it. That was a reaction from a letter. That's just a letter. It's like, it's like every time. It's like when Jack Straw came out and said about Pakistani men are treating young girls mm. as white meat. I watched Question Time, as you said, that night, and all they cared about was he could have dressed it up better. 
I mean, I, I'm, I'm for all for... I don't really care. It, it, if I get offended, if other people get offended, I don't care. Because I think people have to get offended. And people should be willing to get offended. And to solve the deep-rooted issues that we're going to face, we're going to have to offend people. OK, I'll take the gentleman at the back. And then... We, there were questions on the balcony, were there? Sorry, sorry to make you run back up there, but I'll take the gentleman at the back and then we'll go up on the balcony and we'll have to call it a um, night. It's interesting you raised Jack Straw because Jack Straw was here and he was asked about his comments and he made it very clear that his issue was with a strata of the Muslim community that he felt this problem was attributable to. He made it incredibly clear that it was a small problem that was isolated within certain groups. Now, tonight you've referred to radical Islam, Islamists, Muslim leaders. I don't know what you mean. There are many people that would agree with a lot of what you say about radical Islamists that want to force this way of life on us. Of course we wouldn't want that. But then you will say Muslim leaders, Muslims, young Muslims, Pakistani lads in town. I don't know what you mean. And the image that that gives is that you think they're all the same and they all want this, and that is not the case. Yeah. Um, you said about Jack Straw, you watched him, or you saw him here. I watched him on Islam TV. You've got to see this, man. It's so awkward and embarrassing. It's just talk about appeasement. It's just so cringeworthy. When so what, he's changed his opinion? Oh, oh, yeah, well, hold on, we'll, we'll yeah. get there. We'll, yeah. we'll get there. When I say Islamists, yeah, when I'm talking, if I'm talking about in town, I got knocked out recently on a TV programme. That Pakistani who knocked me out probably doesn't go to mosque. Yeah? He probably doesn't pray. In fact, I think he just come out of a bookies. Yeah? When I talk about him, I talk about him like a young Pakistani lad. So if I'm describing him as a young Pakistani lad, that's because that's what he is, so in, in my eyes. What he's, did, what he's done is not driven through religion. What he's done is driven through a lad culture in a very similar way to if I'd have seen Anjum Chowdhury when I was 21, I'd have probably hit him. So even when he hit me, I didn't go to court for him hitting me because I sort of understand why he hit me. Yeah? But when I talk about Muslim leaders, the Muslim leader I'm talking about in Luton is a, name called Qadir, is a man called Qadir Basque. If you wish to look him up, he's the leader of one of the biggest mosques in the town. And he is a complete radical. His whole, his whole website is littered with why Jews, should be why Jews are bad, why homosexuals should be killed. So, it's, again, when it comes down to terminology, I don't think all Muslims are bad. Very far from it. Yeah? I am concerned with certain polls that we've seen when 30, 35% of them believe that we should have Sharia law in Britain. That's a problem for me. One in three university students think they should be, they should be able to kill in the name of Islam. That's a problem for me. I could list time after time of the, the polls I see. One poll I did see, which, which was 50% um, of Muslims in Britain don't feel represented by any, any group. That's promising, because every single mainstream group who you stick on my TV, like the Muslim Council of Britain or any of these other organisations, are crazy. When you start digging underneath on any of them, they're lunatics. But he is still a Muslim leader. So, so your concern really is have a clarity of language. Yeah, but but he but he but the major, every every member of his mosque would not call him a radical Muslim. Yeah, but you They'd just call him a Muslim. Refer to that chap that you then say is a radical Islamist and the rest of it. Yeah. You refer to him as a Muslim leader. That doesn't mean anything. If your issue is a radical Islam, that's probably more okay than having just throwing out the word Muslim leader. That's why people perceive you in the way they do. 
implicitly racist because exactly. you're generalising. That's the problem. You, do, uh, you know when you say racist, you do Islam's yeah. not a race, as I've said. Well, you're the one that said white people rather than Sikhs, Hindus, Islam. White people can also be all of those religions. You're associating race with religion, which is when not did, when, why, why did I say that? You said two wouldn't do that. When did I say that? Well, of course there's a majority, but it doesn't mean... Hold on, hold on, hold on. Right, we just need to just slightly keep. Are there any questions on the on the to balcony? Be, to, be honest, to be honest, if if, the, if your biggest concern with what's going on in Britain is the word that I use, we have a problem. Yeah. No, I, I totally agree, but I think to be fair, and Thomas politics absolutely are not mine. I despise the EDL. Right. I think to be fair, at points during this discussion, he has been clear that he is talking about specific types. And I was very clear at the start of the interview to try and unpick different types of Muslim groups. I think since then, the language used has not been clinical, but you're not dealing with people who are, in Thomas' case, without patronising him, yeah. who are frankly used to dealing with the language of the public sector and the language of the media. And, I think and, and to, be honest, to be honest, the man's uh, a Muslim leader, so I'll call him you know, a Muslim leader. I, I'm not defending what he's saying, I just think I, I was fairly clear about what he was saying. So rather than saying radical Muslim leader, in, in Luton Borough Council's eyes, who have him sitting at the table, on the Luton and Harmony programme, he's just a Muslim leader. So that's not my fault. That, yeah. But I fully, uh, I, you know, I'm more on your side, you know, <laughs> let it be clear, but I understand, I understand what your concern is, but equally I, I, I do feel that, wing, wing. perhaps over the hour, that, that you have been clear that, you know, you are talking about specifics even if the language has been clumsy. Uh, and I, you know, I agree with you as well. So uh, any, one last question on the balcony. Is there anyone on there that's got one? I've sent Sophie up there, no one's bothered. Oh yes, we are. wait for the microphone. This better be good, it's the last question. Um, earlier on you uh, said that uh, a lot of the Muslim groups were highly organised in how they voted. So in the future, would you be encouraging your supporters to join political parties and to, to vote? Yeah, the, the one thing that the English Defence League did was it politicised a generation of working class kids. Um, that's what I see. And... and to moan about the system, you have to be part of the system, and at present they're not. And that's what I said, within the next five years, we'd hope to have organisations set up across the country that will be politically minded and will be engaging working-class kids in politics. But would you set up a political party that those no, people No, not a political party, no. Never. Why not? Why not? It's impossible. But you UK, UKIP are just breaking through now. They've spent £100 million, they've been around 25 years. With the system we have in this country as well. It's like, I, 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 when we started the English Defence League, we thought we'd be able to swing and put pressure on all the parties, whereas really we just become an outside organisation of everyone else clubbed together and kept out. Yeah. You know what I mean? So, um, but why, these, these, do you the, want the, these the, people to vote? Yeah, yeah, they should be voting, yeah. Uh, they should be voting in, in such, whoever's going to address these issues come next election. I think that these issues are, are going to get worse. We're going to see a lot more problems. But see, if, if, if you care, it just strikes me as really odd that you, you've clearly got organisational skills, you've got a level of charisma, you've thought about this a great deal. Why wouldn't you want to try and go into elected politics? Want to start our own political party? Yeah. Mate. Do it the democratic way, like do it the peaceful way. If you way. knew what it was like running the EDL, it, it was, you know when you talk about infiltration, to the top, it's just unbelievable. The organisations, the groups, everything into you. Uh, just so many circumstances. We had one fellow running the, uh, running the Hertfordshire division, and this is just one story. He's running the Hertfordshire division, and he's making all these banners and flags and placards, and he's very, very active, and he's working his way around all the groups. And then he's come to the cafe where we get meet, met in Luton, and he's turned up, he's got a Hells Angel jacket, he's turned up with six big lads, yeah? 
all looked the part. And that's the first time I met him. So I shook his hand and he's, he's whispered in and said, we've got 200 lads up in Stoke. Should we tell them to start attacking mosques? Straight away I went, no, mate, tell them to go to the protest like everyone else. And it, started, it rung bells. Then he asked to meet me. And he came to the pub in Luton to meet me. And he sat at the pub in, in, in Luton and he started talking racism. Yeah? I said, look around this pub. This is my local pub. These are my mates. Because yeah? there's Muslim in the pub. There's JJ Jamal, his name is. I said, there's blacks in the pub. I said, and after that, alarm bells started ringing with who he was. So I got a company called Black Cat Security, who was a fellow I knew, to search his number. And it come back as Kevin Chavesky. He said his dad was Polish as well. So when I next met him, I, I said, Chester Dobley. And his face just went blank. So I thought, your fucking dad's not even Polish. Who, who are you? And then there's a famous Hells Angel around the, this East Anglia called Paddy John. Because we've got a Hells Angels club in Luton. So I said, you must know PJ. And he didn't. So I just... Then the alarm bells are going as to who this bloke is. So where do you think it was from? Well, we went to... Um, I got his... I got, got this check done and this, this phone number that he was using and sold German Shepherd puppies of all things about two years before and it gave a road name in Hatfield so I just got straight in the car with my uncle about eight in the morning I drove into this road name and who'd I catch walking out of his house with his missus and his face went boom it looked like seen a ghost it's like I said who the fuck are you yeah his whole house is like Fort Knox with cameras outside it his wife's gone back inside five minutes later police all over the place his house was registered to a security company based in Holland. So the more that went on, we never heard from him again. I mean, the more we were infiltrated, and the English Defence League probably is still infiltrated. By so you think if you're a political party, that would be an even bigger Mate, risk? Mate, you, you can't trust in this. In this like, with but, but I, I just only feel that, you people. know, these people who are disillusioned need someone to vote for. They need to be and there's political party. parties that when they see it's such an issue and so many people feel so strongly about it, politicians are cowards. They sway the way that they think will keep them there. And, and, and if you become such a force that you are, you are pushing this agenda, which is the only reason why UKIP are, uh, have took... So, I think U, UKIP's path was primed by the English Defence League. And I think that, that the English Defence League woke people up to a fear. I think a lot of people, if their voters were questioned, a lot of people are not voting against immigration, because, to be honest, I don't have a problem with immigration. I have a problem with what I see as... Islamic immigration is coming in and not going to work. Okay, well, it uh, wasn't the laugh I wanted to end on, but uh, <laughs> <laughs> we should have to uh, should have to leave it there. Um, ladies and gentlemen, I fully understand that this has been uh, probably an uncomfortable evening, uh, if a, if a, if a fascinating one. So, uh, thank you for uh, conducting yourselves in a in a way that was befitting uh, of the evening. I really appreciate it. Uh, I think we've heard something tonight that you know we, we certainly would never have heard before. Uh, next month, we're going to be joined by Neil Kinnock. Uh, <laughs> so, um, do come along. Um, but for now, thank you for coming. And um, please, if you will, show your respect for Tommy Robinson. Well, there you go, Tommy Robinson. And obviously, things have uh, developed a lot um, since he and I spoke. And apologies for uh, the amount of time it's taken this podcast to get out. The next one is with Neil Kinnock. That's already recorded, so I'll get that out uh, as soon as possible. And then I show at the end of June at the St James Theatre. Um, I can't announce the guest at the moment, um, but as soon as I can, I will uh, let you know on Twitter. And then we'll be away for July and August for preparations for and then the Edinburgh Festival. I'll be back in September. Some of the people that have agreed to come on the show are, are brilliant, so I'm just trying to tie people down to dates at the moment and I'll be able to announce the autumn and winter uh, guests. And if all the people who said they can do it will do it, then we've got some phenomenal guests coming up. Thank you very much for downloading this. I really appreciate it when people get in touch with me and tell me how much they enjoy it. Um, and 
I mean, we're looking ahead now to what is going to be the most incredible parliament, I think, of my lifetime. Um, with the SNP representation there, with the EU referendum, the Tories with the slim majority, a Lib Dem leadership contest, a Labour leadership contest, God knows what's going to happen to UKIP. These are fascinating times and it's a, a real treat to be able to make a show like this in an era like this. So, thanks for downloading it and uh, see you soon.